Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, how you doing? Absolutely fantastic and much more knowledgeable after we just got done with this L2 implementers panel. We brought on three different individuals who are all working on three different projects who are all implementing their application on a specific L2. Uh, so we brought on Matt Feinstone, who works for business development at Loopring, Justin Moses, the CTO of Synthetics. And we also brought on Robbie Ferguson, who is the co-founder behind Immutable X, which is a ZK rollup based NFT exchange. And so the through line behind all three of these individuals is that they are working for a protocol that is building something on an L2. They are not an L2, they are building something on an L2. So there's an important important differentiator there. And so we talked to them about what it's been like to going through the research phase, going through the building phase and where they are now, and then also where the roadmap is ahead of them. And I found it extremely informative and I'm sure the listeners will as well. Yeah, absolutely. So two things I want to say here. The reason that this is top of mind and relevant is because uh, Ethereum gas fees are high and mm -hmm. it needs to scale outside of what we call kind of the mainnet Manhattan into, into, uh, into layer two, which are these other chains that represent kind of like the suburbs as we've talked about before. So this is a very topical issue right now that's, that's really facing Ethereum. And what we think is DeFi is going to have to completely re-architect itself into this layer two mode. The other thing I wanted to say is if, if you're kind of new to, to layer two, what we're talking about is layer two is basically a chain that is not on the Ethereum mainnet, but is secured by the Ethereum mainnet. This is different than a side chain, which might integrate with Ethereum, but is not secured by Ethereum. That is the distinction between a layer two solution and something that might be a, a side chain or a another non-Ethereum chain that's not as well secured by Ethereum. The thing about this panel is these are all application developers. And that's why David and I wanted to get uh, folks that were in the trenches actually building on top of these layer two solutions to talk because they can give the most credible perspectives on what's working and what's not because they're actually like, users of the product, they're consumers of the layer two. They made a strategic choice, an investment choice to build on top of layer two. So if they're doing that, if they're investing in it, then we we wanted to know why. And we figured that they would have the, the best perspective on what's real, what's not, and when all of this stuff is coming and happening. And I think they gave us this. So if you are looking to try to understand what Ethereum scalability trajectory looks like, what layer two looks like on Ethereum, this is the perfect podcast, I think, to, to get up to speed. There were two parts in this conversation that I really, really enjoyed. The, the first where, uh, is where we asked about the research process. So you know, each one of these guys has works for a team and there was a research process to go into which L2 was the best choice. But before we asked that, we asked, well, why did you even stick with Ethereum? Like what you, you could have gone elsewhere. Why didn't you? Uh, and I think that was one of my favorite parts in this conversation. And then the other favorite part of the conversation came at the very end where we asked about their thesis or theories about does the value capture that's going on on L2 actually compete with Ethereum and Ether the asset, or are they value generative to Ethereum and Ether the asset? I thought that was a really fantastic part of this conversation. 
So as you guys know, there is always a debrief at the end of every single episode that we reserve for the premium subscribers to the Bankless program. But we want to give the free listeners just a taste of what those debriefs are like. So if you are interested in hearing the debrief, you can stay tuned to after the episode and you will be able to hear the 30, 35 minute conversation that that Ryan and I have after the episode where we talk about our takeaways, our lessons, our, our thoughts that we had during the episode, just me and Ryan. Uh, so if you are interested in that content, again, it's at the end of the episode. Uh, it's, it's free for everyone this time. And if, and if you are interested in accessing the future debriefs, you can subscribe to the Bankless Premium RSS feed. There's a link in the show notes to get that done. Uh, I, I thought this debrief was pretty cool. Uh, and so check it out, it's at the end. You guys are really going to enjoy this conversation, but before we get into it, we want to tell you about the fantastic sponsors that made this episode possible. Aave is a borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum and just recently released Aave version two, which has a ton of cool new features that makes using Aave even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi, Money Legos, Yield, and Composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can deposit in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have deposited collateral. Here you can see me getting a 200 USDC loan against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens and ETH. I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option, but I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock that interest rate in permanently. One of Aave's V2 features is the ability to swap collateral without having to withdraw your assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. Aave does all of this for you all in one seamless transaction, so you don't have to repay loans in order to change the collateral you have backing them. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com. Guys, we've entered a bull market. Now is the time to start building your crypto empire and you should do it on Gemini. You already know Gemini is the world's most trusted crypto exchange, but now you can do even more than trade. You can earn. You can take one of your crypto assets and park it in an interest earning Gemini account where you can get up to 7.4% annualized. There's nothing more satisfying than earning passive income on an asset that you're already bullish on. This is a crypto native superpower. You know what's coming soon too? A Gemini crypto credit card. Yep, that's a credit card, not a debit card. It gives you rewards and hard money crypto assets, not something inflationary like airline miles or hotel points. It gives you up to 3% cash back in crypto. The card is coming in Q2, but you should get on the waiting list right now and we'll include a link. See what I mean? This is more than just trading. Gemini is your bridge to crypto for the bull market. Open a free account in less than three minutes at Gemini.com slash go bankless. Get $15 in Bitcoin after you trade your first $100. That's Gemini.com slash go bankless. All right, Bankless Nation, we are here with Matt Feinstone of Loopring, business development at Loopring. We're also here with Justin Moses, who's the CTO of Synthetics. And then also last but not least, Robbie Ferguson, who is the co-founder of Immutable, uh, which is the studio behind Gods Unchained. So Matt, Justin, and Robbie, welcome to Bankless. And we're so excited to have you guys on the show today. 
Thanks for having us, David. L2 implementers, assemble. Gentlemen, you guys have all been invited here to because you share something in common. You have all built and deployed functioning applications to the Ethereum main chain and has seen success and adoption in the usage of your apps, which is already a feat. But there's something even more unique about the respective projects that all of you guys work on and that each of you guys have implemented or are in the process of implementing, which is your guys's app being deployed on an Ethereum L2. Synthetics is offloading much of its infrastructure onto optimistic rollups. Loopring is building a complete payments and exchange platform on ZK rollups. And Immutable is building an NFT asset exchange platform also on ZK rollups. So again, we brought Jesse, Robin, and Matt here to tell us the story of their app, their need to scale, and their process thus far. So let's start with, uh, with you, Matt, and Loopring. Tell us about the nature of your app. What does it do? And at what point did you realize that Ethereum's main chain capacity just wasn't going to be enough? Thank you, David. Yeah, really excited to be here with fellow L2 implementers. Um, yeah, so Loopring is a bit different than I think my, uh, my compatriots here um, in the fact that we had, we were a protocol and then we built products and then we built a new protocol ourselves to uh, the layer two protocol to augment the products. So um, the application did not force us to kind of uh, look elsewhere for a layer two, we, we built it ourselves. So we're kind of a layer two protocol and layer two products. Um, but yeah, we realized long ago that like, you know, we had no business doing what we were trying to do on Ethereum layer one. We were building order book exchanges. Um, the experience was really poor on Ethereum layer one. So we looked for scalability. This was early on. Rollups were just kind of being whispered around. And uh, we built our ZK rollup specifically to scale our order book exchange. So we built an application specific ZK rollup. And then, you know, we start learning and we actually have users and iterating. So the product changes a bit and then we, we enhance the protocol to support AMMs on layer two as well, and then payments as well. So what came from just like an order book DEX protocol um, really turned into an order book and AMM exchange and payment ZK rollup protocol. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a going all over the place there, but as you see, we kind of did like full loop. Uh, no pun intended, honestly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's that's where we're at right now. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how how and why building an order book exchange on the Ethereum L1 was such a such a pain. Like why why did that not really work out so well? Very briefly, the the biggest thing is to get liquidity on order books. You really need market makers or liquidity providers that are in control of their quotes, uh, what they're, you know, quoting to buy and sell and 15 second blocks and gas prices to submit to potentially cancel does not allow them to do their thing and kind of quote as, and as the market's moving, uh, be quick and cheap, like low latency, low fee. So it's really like a non-starter. It's maybe one of the, one of the worst things you could do if you're trying to replicate that legacy style order book on a blockchain, but layer two allows us to really replicate that that performance you feel like you're on coinbase pro or kraken uh except you're on this layer completely coupled to uh ethereum based layer security 
market makers, uh, even with Ethereum before scale was really an issue in the, in the way that gas prices were today, those like 15 second block times and, you know, even pennies worth of, of a transaction, it was already like without the congestion that we have today, it was already a poor experience for, and, you know, people who are managing order books need to be able to basically have instantaneous control, not, not 15 second delays or pennies at, at a transaction. So even before Ethereum was congested, the L1 was never ever going to be able to do what you guys wanted to do. That's a great point, actually. I didn't think of that kind of theme here that like, you know, Justin and Synthetics were forced after like large success on layer one already and uh, uh, potentially same with Robbie. We couldn't do what we wanted to do even a few years ago um, that that's that's very true, and I, I guess we'll jump to this. But the layer one not being suitable for this type of behavior is actually kind of what spawned AMMs, where these market makers don't need to jump in and be quick. You're just kind of dumping your money and letting a function do the thing. So it kind of uh, AMMs came out of the 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 environment that optimized for it. Yeah, Matt, they really came out of necessity, right? It was due to this constraint of basically, uh, you know, low amounts of transactions per second that the automated market maker model became so successful and so popular. Uh, maybe, Robbie, for you, kind of same question. Can you tell us a bit about the nature of your application and at what point you decided that you needed uh, layer two? Yeah, of course. The point was actually really early. When we were first launching the original sale of Gods Unchained, it was at the same time Fcoin was doing their exchange listing. Uh, and I don't know if everyone watching this remembers, but the way they incentivized that was basically as poor as you get, was they incentivized transactions in the ETH network with high gas fees. And so for the first time ever, we were seeing gas fees of like 150, 180. Um, we did some innovations then, which were fine, but fundamentally we did the maths. We were like, okay, if we even get to... 30% the size of Hearthstone, so a medium-sized game, we are taking up some absurd amount of the Ethereum blockchain via NFT transactions, uh, particularly because NFT transactions are a ton more expensive than just ERC-20 transfers. Like you can transfer a million dollars worth of ERC-20 value for a fixed cost. You're transferring in a million dollars worth of uh, NFT value in God's Unchained. Um, that looks like probably you know, 500,000 cards. Uh, so there's a fundamental difference between fungible tokens and non-fungible tokens. Um, and so in picking a solution, really there were, there were no available solutions, I would say three years ago. Um, there were ideas being thrown around. State channels have yet to come to life. Uh, plasma chains also really have not been implemented in a, in a mainstream way. Uh, and this I think was what drove people to things like new layer ones or side chains. And then we had this magical thing called a zero knowledge proof come out, which I remember being obsessed with when I, when I first heard about it, especially the different parables of ways of explaining it, like the, the, the parable of the cave or um, you know the, the numbers and, and how it's all kind of like probabilistically determined, um, which gave me some rough approximation of the mass, which is probably like 1% of what it actually is. Uh, but th this is, as Vitalik says, like the way it will scale. Um, and so I think we, we determined that solution pretty quickly um, that this was the most obvious way to, to scale in particular NFT transfers because they were so problematic on Ethereum. Um, 
and then it was just a, a matter of choosing, well, okay, who, who do we think the best kind of roll-up provider is? Um, ZK roll-ups are a bit about NFTs just because the lack of withdrawal time right now. I think optimistic solutions work better if you want generalized programmability, which is, I think, why, you know, Synthetics is, is, is going with Optimism, which is also an excellent solution. Um, so, yeah, I think that was the, the genesis of when we knew and also when we knew there'd be a solution was when we first saw traction and, and deployment of roll-ups. So to be clear, Robbie, you are going with a ZK rollup type solution in the same yeah. way that, that Matt's team is with Loopring. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, I think we use slightly different providers. I think um, Loopring, do you guys use Meta Labs? Um, we use ourselves. Um, Loopring uh, proto protocol was the first ZK rollup. Um, as of 14 months ago. So that's that's our kind of provider. That's why I was kind of saying we're a bit of a there different we beast. We're a bit of a different beast. Like yeah, we yeah, yeah. operate across the stack. But yeah, the, yeah. no hard feelings. <laughs> no, no, no. Very cool. Very cool. I'm sorry I didn't know that. I think, um, I mean, creating those proofs is bloody hard. That's why that's yeah. how we partnered there. And um, ultimately I see there's a few layers of the stack here. There's proof providers. There's a protocol on top of that. So I, I almost call that like, uh, an AWS infrastructure right down the bottom, which is clearly what you guys are providing. And then you have, okay, well, what networks or products are built on top of that? And then you have applications. Then you have OpenSea, SuperRare, Marketplaces, Games, um, which sit on top of that protocol. Um, so we went for this level. We said we don't need to make the, the magic maths. Um, I, I don't think we wanted to do that. Uh, and and, and there's a real need. Exactly. That's, yeah, yeah literally moon map. Um, and the implementation of it for NFTs is already tremendously difficult. So we, we took on that challenge instead. All right, so let's turn to, to Justin at Synthetics. Justin, uh, Synthetics never really de was destined to be an L2 in the same way Loopring or, or Gossam Chain slash Immutable was. But you guys have turned into an L2 just simply out of necessity um, because mm -hmm. the Ethereum L1 is congested. So let's talk about a little bit of, again, the nature of your app and nature of the economic activity that goes on in Synthetics. And at what point did you guys realize that, you know, L2 was not just like an option for you guys, but something that you guys must do? So Synthetics is uh, a decentralized exchange, a little bit like uh, Loopring, Matt was saying. I guess the big difference for us is we're a bit more like Uniswap and that we're peer to contract and we don't have an order book as such. What's actually happening is people stake a token, uh, SNX token, um, and from that they can issue a stable coin and then they can basically reprice that stablecoin into any other synthetic asset. So basically what we have is this big shared debt pool um, that's comprised of all these different synthetic assets. The more people that go into synthetic ETH, the more the debt pool is denominated in ETH, um, which is kind of cool because it means that you can get this idea of like infinite liquidity. You can take any synth, any synth and 100% convert its value to any other synth that was supported. Um, but the problem with that is that that means that it's all shared, like it's all shared state. Um, and it's, those of you who've ever written any solidity know that that tends to mean things like, you know, you're looping over every cent in the system to figure out how much debt there are there is. And this stuff is very gas intensive. So I think for us, the, the, the sort of, it's sort of somewhat too prompt. Um, I actually think um, you, you're a little, a little off, um, David, on that um, assertion that, that we would never destined for L2. Like if you talk to Kane, he was, he's always been very much that, that we, he wants to experience like Matt was saying, he wants it fast and snappy like a traditional uh, you know, Dex. Um, and so, you know, we obviously couldn't do that on L1. But on top of that, we have this very onerous gas fees that are just preventing, you know, regular people, people who, you know, might only be staking 
you know, a few hundred SNX for actually doing anything because the code that we have is fairly complex. Um, you know, with some people looking at $100, $200 worth at the time of trying to do simple things and minting, or, you know, spending, you know, uh, a few hundred dollars worth of ETH in order to, to earn maybe $50 worth of SNX. So for us, it was really those two, those two factors required us to go over. And to answer your second question, I think it was actually in DevCon 5 um, in Osaka when we saw the Unipig demo. We saw, um, for those of you who were there or might have seen the video, basically, uh, you know, the Plasma team who became, later became the Optimism team, uh, they worked closely with, with Hayden and the Uniswap team and they put together this Unipig and, you know, just seeing it, you know, just seeing the, the tactile response, you know, my, my background's like, full stack web engineering and I you know I was shocked and when we did our demo on L2 it was funny because our front end engineers we were now dealing with like regular kind of you know concurrency problems that, that we just never had with Ethereum we're like we have multiple users using the app we need to basically use web sockets or something to to, to, to tell in real time what's happening to the, this the shared state which we never had to worry about you know with L1 so yeah for us the Unipig demo which was uh, about was it October 2019? Was was definitely the moment we were we started to take a lot of interest in optimistic, and we started talking to them in earnest. Guys, let's let's dive a little bit deeper into kind of the selection process of of layer two, and I want to start here. I know none of you are, let's call it, um, you know, chain maximalists of any sort. Uh, I, I'm pretty certain. I think that you guys are looking out for your users' best interest. That's what application developers do. They want to provide the best user experience uh, and the best application possible for users. And of course, when, when you think about layer two, um, you could also go in another direction, which is a non-Ethereum blockchain. And there are a ton of what we'll call them ETH killers uh, in quotes out there that are promising you know, low gas fees, no gas fees, infinite uh, amounts of, of block space, kind of the all-you-can-eat buffet, please come to my blockchain, Justin, from six, we want your app here. Uh, and yet, all three of you have chosen to stay within the Ethereum ecosystem. And not only that, but have chosen the, the security model of uh, Ethereum as well. So it's not only kind of a, a side chain based on the uh, Ethereum virtual machine, you're actually choosing to go down this even harder road where the security of your rollup is actually based on Ethereum. So there's some, some really new technology that you're cutting your teeth on. I want to know why. And I think listeners want to know why. Why did you stick with uh, Ethereum? And what was the rationale behind the selection of the, the layer two that you've chosen? Let's start with uh, Justin on this question. That's a good question. I mean, I think, uh, you know, for us, um, I, I don't know if any of you know this, but um, when we were Haven, which is what Synthetics was before, before it sort of rebranded, re um, I was actually uh, working on writing, uh, porting our contracts to EOS. I did it for maybe six weeks. Um, I was brushing up on C++ and writing code and, and getting involved and really trying to get, um, like write open source code, write um, continuous integration that, 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 that pulled together Docker containers and spun everything up and tested everything. And whenever I tried to ping the, the community on EOS, it was just crickets. Like it was just nothing. Like, and I was pinging different block producers and trying to get them to like help. And it, and it really just, just re-illustrated how strong the Ethereum developer community is. Like it's massive. You know, there's just so much infrastructure. There's so much tooling. 
Um, and there's so much momentum there. And I, you know, obviously I'm, I'm an engineer, right? So I tend to, uh, maybe I over-index on that, but uh, my experience very strongly is that Ethereum's developer community is so rich that it would be, you know, very hard to move away from it. And, and I didn't, I haven't seen any, you know, ETH killer that has showed me that there's any developer community, anything quite like it. So for, for us, it doesn't make any sort of sense um, to move over to another one. Can we talk as well, while I've got you on this, Justin, about why the optimistic roll-up design specifically? What were the advantages of that versus the other roll-ups or other mm -hmm. ETH, ETH uh, layer two scaling solutions out there? Well, I mean, I think uh, like, so assuming we're on stay sticking on Ethereum, I mean, for us, like, obviously, you know, the ZK, um, they're not having to worry the one week withdrawal period is obviously, you know, it's obviously a better user experience. But there's no doubt about that. Um, but for us, um, a big part of the, the, the decision is how complex our smart contracts are. Um, still to this day, there's no easy way to port smart contract logic, you know, into anything, into anything ZK at all, right, uh, onto L2. So the solution is to try to, you know, to try to take a little part of it, right, whatever you need to sort of take onto L2 and create some sort of ZK, you know, um, um, compatible solution and create it. And a big part of the, the decision for us, uh, particularly for me, is maintaining these two different code bases. So I'd like to talk more about this at some point, and this is a good uh, piece, but um, there's a lot of um, complexity in now maintaining state on both, and not just state, but also contracts um, code on both L1 and L2. Like I'd like to think of it as a new dimension. Now we have our contracts deployed on different networks, right? Like, you know, Covan will have it, but now we also have this dimension of layer two. And the more, you know, the more cognitive load you put on your engineering team, the harder it is to get things done. So for me, like a big, a really big part of the, the appeal of optimism was being able to port more or less exactly as is the contract code that we have on L1 and run it in L2 and then have two separate systems which is more analogous to the shards. And, and, and what I imagine is going to eventually happen is we are going to probably see different L2s and there'll be, there'll be capital moving between these different layer twos. And we need to handle how that's going to happen. I don't actually think it's necessarily going to be winner takes all. Um, you know, so for us to be able to take our logic and move it over wholesale, it's a, it's a huge value out of optimism. Robbie, let's talk about the process over at Immutable. Um, when you guys were realizing that the Ethereum L1 wasn't going to be enough for all the data that you guys would need to be able to put on chain, did you guys ever look elsewhere other than Ethereum? And if you did, uh, what was the rationale behind why you decided to stick with Ethereum? Yeah, of course we looked elsewhere. Uh, we even had offers massive grants from different chains, you, you know how like these things go. Um, this was actually a really simple question for me though. Uh, and ultimately I am an ETH maximalist. Um, I think a bit contrary to, to the original thing. And the reason is not just inherently, hey, this is, this is what I like. It's, I, I think I'm a decentralized maximalist and Ethereum is really one of the only public blockchains which fulfills that criterion for me. Um, the alternative blockchains simply like either their consensus mechanisms are, are so centralized that if I hired a, a crackpot team of um, hitmen with 2 million bucks, I could go crack it. Um, or if the government cracked down, they could go crack it. Or if the, the CEO of the company um, of their centralized blockchain, don't know who I could be referencing here, um, was to leave, there'd be a significant impact to the blockchain. So I think um, just speaking pretty candidly, there's very few decentralized alternatives. So my question is, what is the point then? 
Why don't I run a marketplace on my a database on my computer? Why don't I just do another Steam? Like the whole point of this is to give users self-custody, sensitive resistance, uh, and, and it's fundamentally decentralization and, and, and sovereignty over hard-capped assets and hard-capped money. Um, so I, I don't think going halfway and just creating a nice experience for trading valuable things uh, that, can, that is fundamentally vulnerable to the same things centralized markets are, is doing anything at all. Um, the next thing I would say is, so that's, that's why Ethereum, um, but the next thing I would say is it's not sufficient for me to have some sort of relationship with the Ethereum ecosystem. And I think there's a lot of wool being pulled over people's eyes here as well at the same time, uh, which is, I think, I mean, and, and this is where I actually take my, my learnings from you guys, because I think you so cleverly articulated what are the value propositions of Ethereum, which in, in, in my mind are four. ETH is a consumable, ETH is a capital asset, ETH is a store of value, and ETH is a form of economic bandwidth guaranteeing via its security the operations that exist on that protocol. To me, you have to therefore rely on Ethereum security. Uh, currently, the only scalability solutions which rely on Ethereum security are rollups. Um, so I think that that was partially why I chose that. Like at the end of the day, you want to have the cost to attack the stuff you're trading to be the same as the cost to attack your rollups. I think optimism has a slightly more um, linear cost to it to attack the proofs, but it's it's still correlated to it to Ethereum security. Um, so still really good. And and I think um, you know Justin was on the money with the fact that it's just way better for DeFi apps right now and optimistic solution. Um, so that was why ETH, and that was why rollups. Um, and ultimately, at the end of the day, for customers, it's way better too. Like. ETH is where all the network effects are. It's where all the developers are. That's a really hard thing, even with $250 million uh, to buy, you know, your own ecosystem of, of developers. It's just, you know, that money will only go so far and that people will be motivated by cash rather than um, a, the, the true kind of cultural genesis of, of a decentralized community, which we've seen on Ethereum today. And so what about the research phase for um, Immutable and an L2? Uh, how did you guys come to a decision as to what L2 was the right L2 for you? Yeah, so the, it's, it's really just two decisions. It's one, what kind of, um, so in, in my mind, the only L2s are rollups right now. I um, mean, that's because the definition of an L2 is something which inherits the security of the L1. Rollups the only solution which do that currently. Um, other mechanisms like sidechains, useful, um, they're just, they have their own consensus mechanism. So you're not actually getting a security. They, they have bridges and it's, it's great for the ecosystem. And this is partially why Polygon said, hey, we want to be this you know, um, relationship to, to future ZK rollups and, and, and things like that. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll be excited when they release one and, and they, can, they can use us if they like um, for NFTs. So I think that uh, the first choice was out of rollups, which one? Zero knowledge was very clearly the choice for us. NFTs have a reduced need for EVM compatibility over complex smart logic, and we're also getting there. So Immutable X's implementation of a zero knowledge rollup with Starkware uh, already has the prover on chain, which is able to basically take any EVM logic. We just don't have the language and tooling, which is gonna get there this year. Um, so that's future-proofed. Um, and the main reason for NFTs is the instant withdrawals. So the benefit with ERC-20s and a, a, you know, a protocol like synthetics is you can do things with liquidity bridges to kind of get around this problem with the withdrawal time. They're not perfect, but they're pretty good for fundable tokens. You can't do that for NFTs. If you have a you know, one-of-a-kind crypto key, Axie, God's Unchained card, I can't you know, loan you or construct some liquidity bridge which is gonna give you early access to that capital. It's just impossible. So for us, those were the, you know, a zero knowledge rollup was the only solution. 
out of that, it was like, okay, well, what provided we use and, and Starkware was the obvious choice for us, $30 million from Sequoia, um, a, a really world-class team and, and was future-proofing that as well. All right, and last but not least, of course, Matt from, from Loopring. Uh, was uh, building on something else other than Ethereum ever even something that you guys could have considered? Right. So first of all, such a pleasure to hear these guys uh, speak, Robbie and Justin, and like so like-minded or facing similar things. And uh, I don't have much else uh, valuable to say except for our own situation. But yeah, I really echo everything they said. Um, did we ever look somewhere? Here's another little fun tidbit, actually. Even before scalability was like the big pressure on us or the big thing we were trying to tackle, we actually did look elsewhere off Ethereum back three years ago. And I will up uh, Justin's EOS. We actually deployed smart contracts for Loopring version one on NEO. Um, on NEO. Wait, NEO, the, the, uh, the uh, China's answer to Ethereum? That Neo? That, that's right. Okay. Um, and, and Can you that, kick someone from a call? <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, no, hey. we'll just edit that out, Robbie, if we have to. <laughs> no, it's okay, Matt. You know, we, we, we all have those things that uh, have happened in our past that we're trying to get over now. But tell us yeah, more. Sure. No, we. Uh, I think it's a great learning moment. Um, we, you know, Loopring is actually a primarily Shanghai-based team. Most of our engineers and um, I'm not there, I, I'm in Canada, but um, a, a big part of our team is there. And back then it wasn't so obvious to some, even to me, even though I'd also consider myself, uh, you know, just a, a purely ETH person now by a long shot. Back then it wasn't clear that you didn't want to deploy your things on other chains, not for scalability reasons, just for, oh, this is maybe the Ethereum of China or who interoperability, different chains. Like the reasons are, are fuzzy now looking way back then but we we deployed it but it was really kind of like uh like an, a tangential um effort and as soon as we did it it kind of didn't work for certain technical quirky reasons like the way their gas what well, it's it's actually kind of funny to think about it they had like two types of gas and like if you did the transaction that is below some type of like consumed gas it's like free if i remember correctly but then it like spikes up it's like a step function if you do anything a bit more complex it was really so actually the reason why we dropped it was because it was technically not feasible that was before ethereum just became the clear place where we wanted to focus our time as justin was saying like the, the cognitive uh, overhead and just the simplicity so so we actually looked elsewhere so we have a bit of firsthand experience about dealing with crickets in a community or just facing all those things. But it really was a different world back then in 2017. What's worse, Matt, crickets or high gas fees? Is kind of the question, oh, right? Yeah, right, exactly. That, that's a, the first thing I thought of when, when you posed the question was like, user experience is not, like we all think like, okay, speed and cost. That's like actually way down the list on user experience. What's way higher is people, both users and devs, assets, um, liquidity, and like awareness, right? Like that is, um, those are prerequisites before anything else in user experience, which we think of like speediness and costliness. Like, so those, so those are indeed the things about why Ethereum. Um, now to get to the next point, when we tried to tackle scalability, it's funny, um, someone mentioned DevCon 5, 
for us, it was DevCon 4 in Prague and just ZK rollups. I just remember it so clearly. People were talking about ZK rollups for scalability. And I remember just writing my team. I was the only one there like, hey, what is this stuff? It sounds like it's a magic bullet to uh, all, of our, uh, all of our problems. And back then there were no live ZK rollups. There was no, like to my, maybe there was the beginnings of, of thoughts about companies forming, but there was no Starkware in its current form or, or Matter Labs or really any live ZK rollup. So we became overnight a ZK rollup team. And we're not a bunch of cryptographers. Um, as, as Robbie was saying, these proof systems are hard, but like our team turned into practitioners of zero knowledge cryptography. And um, really we had a few great engineers leading us building the first ZK rollup from scratch, which was a huge, a huge effort. It took a year, it stopped everything we were doing. Um, but yeah, we, we, we built it our, ourselves and um, that's that. I forget the next part of the question. Why ZK over optimism? Uh, I hadn't actually asked it yet, but that's exactly right. It seems like um, ZK rollups was the rollup of choice for you guys. And it was, seemed really, really conducive to you guys from the get-go. It seemed like you guys never really had any doubt that ZK rollups was the solution for you. What strengths did ZK rollups have that really just made it crystal clear that it was the right path forward? So I may be mistaken here. Maybe somebody could correct, but I don't think optimistic rollups were a thing back then. I think rollups, right. like the, the idea of like a rollup, like generalized was, I guess it was a thing because people thought, okay, validity proof or fraud proofs, but like you, you didn't have debates, like cool debates now, like ZK versus optimistic. It was like, okay, rollups and like, yeah, you use these validity proofs. As far as I know, we only discussed that. We never thought of, I, I could be wrong, but then as we progressed and like we were mid build and maybe the idea came out a bit, we were still very, very strongly in the ZK rollup camp because it does offer us what we need. We're not, we don't have those complex kind of arbitrary logic um, that, that Justin was describing. We were building order book exchanges, right? Which turned into order book exchanges plus payments plus AMM. So still just like specific functions we were tackling. So ZK was able to handle that. So that's kind of one, one reason. The other is indeed the fast withdrawal times. We, that's a big thing, um, which is live on Loopring now. It's really cool. You could exit. It used to be a big thing that people said, oh, you know, it's an hour wait, two hour wait is, is way too long. Um, now you could pay up to kind of eject from layer two in the next Ethereum block, 15 seconds. It might cost you like 60 bucks or 70 bucks right now, but that then you don't wait. Um, something like that. So, so those, that was it, but really it's the, the cold hard fact is like, it was just the one that we were aware of, but when we did kind of be, become aware of optimistic rollups, we just also, we liked the, the idea of validity proofs. Maybe we had like these naive debates, which have since been answered, but I remember talking to the team and okay, what about optimistic rollups? It's going to be more generalizable. Um, but we also like, we like the idea of just like, validity proofs like not waiting for fraud proofs after i think we posed the question like what happens if there's never any fraud on an optimistic roll-ups like the watchers never like win a bond or something like that i don't know if that's even since been answered but like that was like a thing like okay if everyone is too well behaved then does everybody like let up their guard because nobody's actually like slashing people or winning like a challenged fraud proof so like we had those early probably now answered questions, but we just like the idea of validity proofs. 
So I, I want to you know frame this question to the uh, the implementers, the the Avengers of of uh, implementing on layer two right now uh, this way. So a lot of people when they're seeing kind of um, Ethereum's congestion as as D David sort of phrased it, but basically it's high gas fees. Um, they're getting flashbacks to 2017 where Ethereum had its you know crypto kitties moment when uh, basically. Um, you know, everyone realized that the CryptoKitties application was consuming too much of the Ethereum network and, oh my God, Ethereum had to scale. And then we also remember that the Ethereum scaling solutions at that time were not quite ready for prime time. There was like a lot of promise about state channels, for instance, you know, projects like, like Raiden would come and solve things. Then there was a lot of promise about Plasma, that, you know, Plasma was the next solution to, to scale Ethereum. There was even promise about ETH too. Hey, it's, you know, maybe it's right around the corner, kind of like, but we're not sure what the roadmap looks like. Um, so this is a question I think only the implementers can answer. And this is the reason we brought people who are building apps to this conversation is because you guys can drop the truth on us, right? Like no one else can. I mean, we bring on uh, some of the, the layer two providers. They're all going to sell us the vision essentially and, and try to sell us the platform but you guys are actually in the trenches building this shit so what we want to know to the panel is uh is layer two really happening this time like how far along are we is it here i mean because mainstream's coming and they're coming right now they're coming during this bull run we got to be ready for them how ready are we let's start with matt on that question Absolutely. Uh, maybe you gave me this one because it's a, it's a softball pitch for me because I could say it's not coming, it's here, uh, you know, exclamation point. Um, it's, it's here, like that's all Loopring does. Without layer two, we wouldn't exist. We wouldn't have a product, we wouldn't have a protocol. So to the extent that like we have stuff to do every day and our users do stuff and there's volumes, that's all layer two, live, mainnet, real value. So let's get that off. Uh, right out of the way. It, it's here. Now it's time to learn and tweak and, and iterate and everybody else is coming. You know, we've kind of, we've been alone for the past year. Now, uh, like, you know, mega popular apps are coming, um, synthetics, apps and protocols. Um, so now, you know, they're live, they have a, a, a function of their platform live on mainnet. So it's here, it's not just us. And it's really amazing as, as all these builders know, when you actually have users and things are happening, you start improving, right? Like that's like compared to our ZK, our ZK rollup last year, um, it was barely usable. Everything was like, everything was gas intensive. You couldn't do that much stuff. Now it's like, you know, it's, it's more efficient, it's more flexible. So we're gonna see that kind of inflection kick in where people are learning from their L2 experiences and everything is just, uh, I mean, it's, it's here. I'm so bullish. If people don't know that layer two is here and it's only getting better, then I hope this episode really, um, or maybe I don't want them because that's a, a nice FUD thing against ETH. And I want it, you know, I don't want it to just be realized overnight and then priced in that, oh yeah, this could do everything that, that we needed to. So I don't mind actually some apprehension or, or some other conspiracy theories that it's not coming because that gives me more time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Alpha is of course always opportunity. But but Matt uh, at Loopring, you guys are still building stuff. You guys are still working on progressing Loopring. So if you aren't actually working on building the actual L2 platform, what are you guys working on? Like what? Where are you guys in your guys's roadmap to actually capture and facilitate L2 scale? 
Right. So I think we still are definitely working on all fronts. That's why I was saying we're a bit of like a, a different beast. So we have that whole proving team and the relayer who's you know generating these ZK snark proofs. They still have improvement to do. Then we have the actual protocol, what we could write in our ZK circuits. Um, you know, now as of a few months ago, AMMs are on our layer two. So still improvements there. Maybe next will be a lending protocol or another type of functionality. So those are kind of the two pieces of the ZK roll up front, like the relayer and then the protocol written on top of it. And now we have this new layer of, of products, which is kind of new to us, but super important is presenting this in a package to the user on like the loop ring exchange on, on web, which is an AMM and order book decks and, um, and payment uh, application where you can do everything gas free. And so just improving the products, which, which is a huge, huge thing and, and quite um, different hat for us. And, and besides our, our loopering uh, exchange, we have the loopering wallet, which is kind of another thing with, I know you guys are right on top of from Vitalik's recent episode on social recovery wallets, but loopering kind of uh, you know, expanded its focus again. And we have um, a, smart, a mobile smart contract wallet. So the social recovery wallet with our ZK rollup baked in which is kind of a dual, like a really two-pronged approach at like mass, uh, you know, mass market usability. So, you know, fast and cheap, but also a product that doesn't scare you with a seed phrase and is like socially scalable and like usable there. So, so we're, we're still busy on all those fronts, protocol, product, um, all that. Uh, definitely, definitely, it's only getting busier now that we actually have real users and real volume. You know, two hundred and fifty million dollars worth of worth of value on on our zk rollup, which is unbelievable for me to think about. I remember being discouraged, you know, mid last year, saying, "Man, how hard is getting people on layer two going to be?" And by no means are we, you know, hanging up our hat like we we've, we've achieved it all. We're just getting started. But it's just so nice to see real users, real volume. We're we're all grateful and and really. Uh, looking forward to continuing it. Guys, I just want to capture that because Matt, you know, 250 million in, in locked value on a loop ring. Look guys, like a year ago at this time, we barely had that much locked in DeFi in our DeFi protocols, right? I mean, we just hit like the 1 billion mark in something like February of last year. So now that we've got like loop ring 250 million, that's huge. And, uh, you know, congrats to the team there and congrats for, for pushing this vision forward. I just, you know, this space moves so fast. It's unbelievable what you can accomplish in six months, a year's time. Very cool. Thank you so much, by the way. Hey guys, there's so much more left in this interview. We talk to these three DeFi L2 implementers about the possibilities of fiat cash on ramps directly onto their L2 rather than having to go directly through Ethereum themselves. And then we also talk about the value accrual thesis for L2 tokens versus Ether, the asset on the main L1. Do these things compete in value capture or are they value accretive in value capture? I think that's a really fascinating conversation. We're going to get to all of that talk but first, we're going to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. If you want to live a bankless life, you've got to get yourself a Monolith DeFi Visa card. Monolith is a one-two punch. It's both an Ethereum smart contract wallet and a Visa card that lets you spend the money you hold in your Ethereum account anywhere Visa is accepted. This is super cool. You can swipe your card at the coffee shop, at the gas station, 
when you do, you're paying with crypto, all without a bank. This has been the crypto vision since day one, and it's here. Monolith also offers on-ramps for getting your fiat into the world of DeFi. So it's trivial to top up your Monolith card whenever you need to. You could top it up with ETH, DAI, or DeFi tokens. And because Monolith is native DeFi infrastructure, the money that you hold not only never touches a bank, but it retains its DeFi superpowers. So you can swap assets on Uniswap, you can earn yield in DeFi protocols. You've never had a Visa card like this before. Go to monolith.xyz now and sign up to get your Monolith card. That's monolith.xyz. If you are looking for a product that connects your fiat bank account with DeFi tokens and products, you need to download the Dharma mobile app. Dharma is a non-custodial smart contract wallet and comes with a bridge that connects you right into your bank account. Dharma is the fastest and most efficient wallet between your fiat in your bank account and any token on Uniswap or even any vault in Yearn. With Dharma, you can get over $25,000 per week into the DeFi universe and you can do it non-custodially. If you or anyone you know is hot on DeFi and you're trying to get your money into a DeFi investment, Dharma is the place to go. Signing up and going through KYC is an absolute breeze. It took me just under three minutes, and after signing into my bank account via Plaid, I am now just one transaction away from any token that Uniswap has to offer. Go to www.dharma.io, that's D-H-A-R-M-A.io, download the Dharma app, and get yourself unbanked today. Let's turn to uh, Justin with Synthetics. Justin, where are you guys in the development of your L2? Well, like, what what is that roadmap like? Where are you guys in that process, and what where do you have left to go? So right now, the uh, Optimisms are like has a pseudo mainnet, so it's pseudo in that that we're the only ones that can actually deploy right now. Um, but uh, you know, plans are underway for the for a full real mainnet, right? And and as um as Matthew said before. Uh, you know, one of the great things about optimism is it's generalizable. And I think to answer Ryan's question before about like how real is this, I think a generalizable uh, way to start deploying contracts uh, on L2 that's very, very similar to deploying on L1. You need a, you need your own compiler that's basically like a, a superset of, a, an, a, of the Sol-C compiler. Um, and you just switch your provider to optimism and, you know, away you go. You need a bit of wrapped ETH in there instead of ether and it's pretty much, you know, bam, bang, you know, you can you actually deploy on L2. And I think that knowing that that's coming, um, you know, around the corner this year is gonna be pretty huge. It's gonna pave the, pave the way for lots of developers who may not wanna sort of get into the nitty gritty of actually trying to get into ZK Snarks to be like, I just wanna be able to write contracts the way I always have and, and deploy it in something a lot faster and cheaper. Um, in terms of our roadmap, um, so we're right now at a, a situation where not quite as much as, as Matt. I think I just had a quick check now. There's about 160 million right now of USD value of, of SNX. It's, it's on our layer two, uh, which is probably even more than perhaps we want, considering it's a phase zero. So right now, what we have is um, some stakers. Uh, you can stake your SNX on layer two, but um, the SUSD that, that that is what happens is when you stake on synthetics, you basically mint stablecoin. The SUSD that's on layer two is basically you know, useless. The capital can't, you can't do anything with the capital right now. There's no other protocols on there, there's nothing else you can do. And yet there's still $160 million of value on there, which is, which is pretty wild. Um, the Synthetics DAO is sending uh, 25,000 SNX a week to distribute among people who are staking, but that's it. 
um, and yet there's still a lot of value. So clearly, you know, people are, are really excited to to get off <laughs> to get off um, paying gas on layer one. Um, our next phase is to basically enable basic exchanging. So probably have like um, uh, having uh, Ether and Bitcoin um, and actually being able to slowly, hopefully if we get some other protocols on there, actually do something with these with these synths as opposed to just having them static sitting on layer two. You know, but for us, you know, a big, a big part of the excitement is as other teams and, and protocols do develop, as, as Matt was saying, like as, as other teams do start developing different things and they're on layer two, well, then we can get that, those DeFi Legos you know, plugged in. And that's uh, something that we're, you know, we're also pretty excited because, you know, as you can probably infer, once you sort of take away, you know, uh, 15 second block times and a bunch of other requirements, all of a sudden new ideas of things you can do um, start to pop up. So Justin, I, I, I just want to be clear. It. Oh, sorry. Just one thing. Justin, I just want to be clear on this because this, this would have felt like a, a miracle in 2017. What you're saying is your team and what you've done with synthetics on optimistic rollups right now is living proof that generalized smart contracts work in a rollup now. Like that mm -hmm. works right now. That's what you're telling that us, works. right? We so what we basically, like just forget a little technical just because I find this useful. Instead of just sending um, you know, tokens, right? From layer one to layer two, we're actually sending messages, bytes 32 encoded messages. We take um, users escrow entries because when you stake with SNX every week you claim and you earn SNX that's escrowed. We're taking this payload and actually sending it off to layer two and recreating the state that existed on L1 and now we're recreating on L2. So we can actually create this, you can these generalizable messages. You can actually send data and you can do it both ways. But as you obviously know that there's that one week withdrawal period um, which is very onerous. Now for us, as, as Robbie mentioned, we're, we're talking fungible tokens, so it's not a big deal. Um, you can have a market maker come and basically solve the problem of liquidity by if it's SNX or it's SUSD or something else, they can basically, they can, they can basically sit there and, on both sides and provide liquidity. But yes, we, we do have a generalizable solution. It's just right now, oh, sorry for the noise. It's right now, um, it, not anyone can, can deploy to it yet, but there is a, there is a solution coming um, soon where anyone can actually deploy to it and you know write their code in solidity um, transpile it using the OVM compiler um, and then deploy as I said using a regular provider because the thing that the optimism team are really big on um, and I really commend them for is 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 not reinventing the wheel and just leaning on as much as a much of, uh, of standards and developer tooling that everyone's used to um, so there's no you know magical list or magical that everything tries to be as much you know, EVM compatible as possible. Now, of course, there's more com it's more complex because of fraud proofs and things like that, um, but they really try to make it as, as compatible as possible. Justin, do you happen to have any sort of like napkin math as to how much gas you've been able to save your users or perhaps like what percentage of synthetics economic activity you've been able to offload? Any numbers like that you could give us? Uh, I don't have it on my head, off the top of my head, but I think it's something on in the order of like two orders of magnitude difference. Like, so a 500k gas transaction ends up being about 5k gas. And you think of it like what the roll up is really what is persisted onto layer one is um, is effectively the um, the two things. For every transaction, there's the call data, so the things that you know the inputs of the the function call, um, and then uh, the Merkle hash right of of the state. And they're the only two things that are actually persisted on layer one. So every time it, every time someone transacts, they basically those two things have to be eventually get pushed onto layer one. So it is about two orders a magnitude difference in terms of in terms of gas. Now it's a little hard to compare what's happening on layer two right now 
um, to one, just because uh, right now uh, the gas is being basically paid for. Um, the users aren't paying for it right now, just during this, this pseudo mainnet. So it's hard to really say what's, you know, how many people are actually, uh, <laughs> you know, how much of this is real activity. As we all know, people are a bit different when it comes to their own money versus um, when something's free. Just to go a little bit deeper into that, you know, Synthetics is one, has one of the most vibrant communities in all of Ethereum. It's kind of the thing that, that you guys are known for. It's the, the Synthetics communities. What I would say brought Synthetics through the bear market and into the mainstream knowledge as we know today. I would imagine that the demand for scale is, must be absolutely massive inside of your community. Um, what can you what can you tell us about community interest in accessing this L2? Like when you guys open up the door, is there just going to be a flood of people that move on to this L2? Or have you guys done any sort of like consumer research in this domain? Sorry, you're talking about our users or are you talking about other developers, like another product? Your, your guys' as users who want to move on to the synthetics L2 to stay. Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, a lot of them really want to see, you know, a real trading app you know, like Matt was saying before, they want to see, you know, ticking prices. They want, you know, to get their orders filled immediately. They want atomicity. They want all the things that we don't, we can't provide right now on our one. So yeah, 100%, I see people going over there. Now, of course, um, the question of how useful is the capital that you mint or the things that you have on L2 is going to be a big, it's going to be an issue. So we will have to see, um, you know, what else appears on, on optimism. Um, and then if not, like how, like what other solutions to, as I said before, to get your SMX or your synths back to layer one and play with them if you need to. Um, I think that that's still a bit of an open question right now. We need to see whether, where that sort of comes to fruition, but it seems like based on what I said before, the amount of rewards that are being sent onto layer two are pretty minuscule. And yet we still have, you know, something in the order of, I said, like 160 million, like 6.6 .6 million SMX, right? Which is, what is that? Uh, I don't know. 6.6 6 times supply. roughly $25. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I meant the, the total supply. Like I don't have the total supply off the top of my head. Um, what number wow. that is, but you know, like 3% or something. Yeah. Which is pretty significant considering. Yeah. That's fantastic. Fantastic work. Uh, and really exciting because you just released um, kind of the layer two optimism, like what two weeks ago, three weeks ago, something like that. I don't know. Time, time moves I mean, in a different it, way. Yeah. It feels like about three months. Um, <laughs> it's actually, okay. I, I think it might have been a month ago, actually. Now, month ago, okay, month ago now. Yeah. Thanks for the time adjustment. Time is weird for me right now these days in crypto. Okay, uh, Robbie, same question to you, right? So you represent the the NFT uh, side of of these applications, and NFTs are having an absolutely massive moment so far in 2021. This is going to be an absolute breakout year. Like, um, it, it it seems so obvious, but but same questions to you, how real is layer two for NFTs right now? Like hit us with the truth. Yeah, uh, building a layer two for NFTs is really hard, uh, especially compared to ERC-20s. NFTs are fundamentally antithetical to liquidity. If you have eight and a half million Gods Unchained NFTs, you have eight and a half million order books. Each of those could have their own Uniswap market. It's nuts, like they literally have their own bids asks and spreads and Robbie, just so just so people can understand this this is almost like you know like uh obviously fungible tokens are things we see in the real world like like uh coins and dollars and these things are fungible yeah nfts they're more like collectibles they're they're individual items like things you might find in a in a pawn shop in the real world right so of course each yeah. nft is completely unique you can't trade one ft with another and that's why you're saying 
they each represent a, a separate order book almost. And yeah. each NFT yeah. needs to find the right buyer, right? Like it's, there's not a global buyer for NFTs in the same way that there's a global buyer for dollars or gold or coins. Because they're fungible. Each of these you know, goods is unique. Uh, what I think, and I, I, I steal this from Jesse Walden, who's a great thinker on the NFT space, uh, is DeFi is as to financial services as NFTs are to literal assets in, in the real world, like uh, cars, options contracts, um, physical goods, term deposits. Heaps of stuff in the real world are unique, and that's what financial services exist to serve. So I think fundamentally we're seeing the innovation of tokenization of everything, the final stage. And that's why this space has gone nuts. We have Mark Cuban making NFTs of him tweeting cameos. Uh, we have um, you know, major IP pouring into um, different partnerships. The amount of people who have, have reached out to our company over the last you know, three months is 20 fold over the previous year. So the space has been insane. It's really difficult to provide scalability, which is why Flow went off and said, hey, we can do a good competing business to Ethereum by carving a niche out of NFTs. Uh, and this is why I'm quite excited to say that within six weeks from now, the first ZK L2 transfer of an NFT will occur um, on Immutable X um, and, and people will be able to do that. So it's definitely here. Uh, I've, I've done demos where we're doing testnet integrations with uh, basically partner applications because the goal of immutable x is like honestly it's it's two things one i want to make nfts huge uh and i want the future home of those nfts to be on a blockchain which is good infrastructure which is open frankly that's ethereum right now you need to use its security fundamentally um and so the, the way i want to do that people should just trade but they want to trade they want to trade on OpenSea. I want to make OpenSea the most amazing place to trade ever and have those guys be hugely successful. People want to trade in, in Fortnite and have an API and, and just trade in that marketplace. They should be able to do that and have all the benefit of Ethereum level security. Uh, so yeah, we've been, we've been working hard on this for um, nearly a year and a half now. Uh, we're, we're, we're stoked to be able to release it at, at, at this time. So Robbie, because we've heard a little bit uh, of this from the other two panelists about sort of the before and after, right? They, they described like kind of the, you know, a current state on the mainnet, if they had their app, you know, their, their app exists on the mainnet versus, versus now, and it's world with faster UI, better experience. Mm. Can you kind of describe the before and after for somebody who is, you know, using NFTs today or trading NFTs today on mainnet versus when Immutable X goes live? What's, what's the difference? How's a user going to feel this? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the main difference is they pay zero gas ever. If you're a game developer, you pay zero gas to create an NFT, to mint one. If you're a, a user, you pay zero gas to trade an NFT. It's on a validity proof. So you have the same level of security as Ethereum always, uh, which is fundamentally the point. It's the reason why we're good for Ethereum down the track. If, if NFTs become huge, if L2s become huge, we're not taking value away from the fundamental chain. Um, that's really important to me. Otherwise you can't get Ethereum supporters on site. Otherwise you're essentially just competing at the end of the day. Um, so that's the user experience. Uh, the other thing is we're working with Starkware to make it so if you have layer one ETH, you don't even have to deposit that. Um, so really I want the worst, the minimum experience to be identical to current thing. You pay an ordinary gas fee, you use your layer one ETH. The best experience to be hey, I've literally just signed a transaction. I see this NFT in my account instantly. It, it feels like magic. Like it legitimately feels like magic after three years of spending, oh, will this come in two minutes? Will it come in 10 minutes? Am I paying $45 to trade a $1 Gods Unchained card? 
which is just crazy. So I think the demand is, the, you know, it's gone from being a, um, a vitamin to a painkiller for NFTs is the way I describe it. Um, and right now it's, it's gone to being general anesthetic, the state of NFTs. So Robbie, I want to I want to pin you down here because I have a gauze and chain deck that I enjoy playing with, but uh, I'm far from a professional, and so I would like to use the marketplace to bolster my deck. But I remember that it would cost, like you said, it would cost me five dollars or ten dollars to get this card that was worth two three dollars. Um, so when do I get to use the NFTX marketplace to purchase all the gauze and chain cards that I want? Yeah, our goal would be. For Gods Unchained, we'll, we'll roll it out first mm-hmm. in quarter one. So within six weeks, um, you can create a prediction market on that. I'll pay um, <laughs> for it. Awesome. Fantastic. All right. So I think that unless Ryan, you have any other uh, questions you want to follow up here with this section, I want to turn to the conversation of uh, composability because this is a, a frequent topic of concern that many people have when it comes to L2, which is, well, if, if Loopring gets all the liquidity on the Loopring L2 and Synthetics has the liquidity on the Synthetics L2, well, then, A, we're fragmenting liquidity. And now that we're all on separate L2s, we're all multiple hops further away from each other than we once were, right? So let's start with Matt. Like, how are, how are you guys addressing this concern of fragmented liquidity and broken composability? What are you guys doing to uh, help mitigate this issue? And, or do you even consider this an issue? For sure. This is, uh, it's a, it's a huge thing. We haven't had to deal with it practically because we're the only ones. So we've, you know, people kind of jab at this, this potential weakness in, in layer two and, oh, you're all going to be in silos. And again, especially Loopring, because Loopring ZK rollup is quite application specific. We have the DEX, we have the AMM, we have the payments, but like we're not trying to get like like we wouldn't have been a solution for um, Gods Unchained. Like we couldn't have told Robbie, hey, build on Loopring, because we're not trying to uh, you know like Starkware power their other applications. So there might we're not you know inviting other teams necessarily to come build and. We're gonna hey like you know tweak our, our back end to optimize for you and, and stuff like this. So we're kind of doing our thing, um, you know, which, which is kind of a it's an interesting statement to say because you know everything as Ethereans, all of us we do is so open. Um, but yeah, the loopring, and this kind of goes back to your other question: Did you ever look at alternative L1s? To some extent, layer twos do become a bit of a silo. Uh, you're there and you have to kind of make a transaction to go into there, make a transaction out. And it could be as instant or not instant, depending on ZK rollups or optimistic rollups. But at the, at the best case scenario, then you're in a rollup with other people. So synthetics, you're, you're, you're in a rollup where there's other stuff going on. And then it becomes kind of similar to layer one. Synthetics might have plenty of company, probably will have plenty of company on optimism. I'll let Justin speak to that. And then you kind of have those same composability, um, you know, th- those great properties. To go cross rollup, there's a new, now this is the next frontier, cross rollups, right? We all know rollups are here. So how will we go across? Could we, ha- will it be easier for maybe validity proof to validity proof rollup? So like, will I be able to speak more easily to, to Robbie or to another Starkware application because it's loopring ZK rollup to another ZK rollup? Can we also go equally as easy to optimistic rollups? So this is the next frontier. Um, 
there's a, there's a few projects working on that. There's Connects, there's uh, Hop, which or, which came out recently. Um, so to, to be honest, we largely leave that to these new solutions to come. We, we speak with them, we, we ask them questions, they ask us questions, but we, um, we're not trying to solve um, composability ourselves. Uh, we are trying to build the best kind of environment and products that, that we can on Loopring ZK Rollup. And we kind of take it for granted that really smart people, our peers, are gonna figure out to build bridges. Um, you know, and everything again, rooted, the, the, the most crucial thing, rooted in Ethereum security. So if like, if liquidity providers have to bridge an exit from Loopring and entrance onto synthetics or onto optimism, then that liquidity provider at least has the assurance that like, this is all Ethereum level security guarantees. They don't have to have a, a mental space for um, this side chain that has seven validators, um, right? So like all these rollups, at least they're speaking the same language and they know like the fallback is Ethereum layer security. And then it's just like talking about what is the market rate on their liquidity to front you a thousand die exiting loop ring and then putting the, and crediting you that on optimism. What do I need for that? Do I need 50 basis points for the hour? Like it becomes a financial consideration, which clearly Ethereum has excelled at figuring out these, these, these amazing new models and things like that. So it's gonna be solved, I guess, with a mix of technology and financial innovation and just like the market rate for, for liquidity, which sounds maybe like not such a huge thing, but that, that's how composability is gonna work. Maybe like the equivalent of flash loans, right? From one to the other. And I guess we, we still are thinking about it in the sense that like we have in our, we have conditional transfers. So I could make a message on that, that is contingent on a layer two and a layer one act, action, right? So like, again, fronting this liquidity and being in two places at once. So if I do something on layer two, then I take that message and then it allows me to do something on layer one. Um, we do support these conditional transfers. Those are a big thing. That, that's what fast our fast withdrawals are based on. Um, but yeah, at, at the end of the day, it's, um, I think a lot is to be seen. Like I really have a big chunk of this. I just don't know how it's gonna play out. There's still technical pieces to fit in place. There's behavioral pieces to fit in place. Like how often will people be leaving their roll-ups? Um, right. And then again, it's the ZK versus optimistic uh, exit timing. It's just, there's a lot of unknowns here, but it's clear that the work is, is, is being done and it's a mix of technical and financial and composability will remain, but it's, it's, if I have to say kind of one thing, like, you know, that's okay, let's, let's assess a risk here. Composability is not as beautiful as everything being on layer one, that's for sure. But we're, we're gonna get over that hump. Tristan, I'd, I'd like to pull you into this, into this conversation. One of my long-term uh, optimistic cases for, for Loopring is that uh, Loopring is a place that will be able to take fiat, uh, take a fiat on-ramp, right? And so let's say I transfer my 100,000 whatever dollars into Loopring, and then I start trading SNX, right? Um, buy, sell SNX to use the Loopring uh, L2, and then say I, I've got my SNX bag filled. And now I want to take that SNX bag, and, or, and maybe I also have SUSD 
on, on Loopring as well. Maybe there's both S, SNX and SUSD on Loopring. But now I want to go into the synthetics ecosystem. I want to reprice my SUSD debt. And if, if, uh, if um, in, in the current form of things, without the uh, theoretical financialization market makers that Matt was just talking about, I would have to uh, exit out of Loopring, which would be one transaction. It would take some time. It would be a little bit more gas intensive than a basic L1 transaction. Then I would have to go into the Synthetics Optimism L2 in order to do some of the activity going on there. And that would also take another transaction and it also takes some time. How do you see some of these frictions being smoothed out um, and down the road? Uh, look, I think Matt's right. It's like the next frontier. I mean, to just to take a slight step back, like sharding, you know, horizontal scaling is, is where we're going. Like this is Ethereum. Like it doesn't matter what we want to say and label this L2. Like this is inevitable. Like we have to do something. And I don't think there's going to be one solution as I said before. And when this is, we're all coming to a loggerheads of trying to figure out how the, how the hell are we going to do this stuff? Um, you know, I mean, you're, I mean, you mentioned there, um, David, the, the, the cost of gas and stuff. And, you know, of course that will be, that's going to be unpleasant. I'm not, maybe as Matt said, there'll be a way to connect the dots between, you know, one roll up to another roll up. And I don't, I can see that being possible. I just, I don't see how that's going to come out generalizably, but maybe, um, I don't, I, you know, I don't really have a great answer for you, but I mean, I guess the, I guess for us, like our attitude and our kind of ethos has always been, let's just iterate. Um, let's throw things out. Let's see what sticks. Let's get MVPs out there. Let's see what people want and use and, and go with it. So I wish I had a better answer, but we're, we're looking towards, as I said before, market makers who could help get the, the, the assets back out quickly. But to talk to another L2, it feels too early to really have a good answer to that right now. Just, I'd be just curious so. if you know, anyone else has thoughts. I want to ask you yeah. kind of two follow-up questions, but but the first is this, you know, in putting kind of the, the technical hat on that that you wear all the time, I've I've heard some critics say, well, if you break composability, you're not really solving Ethereum's scalability problem, right? And and what they mean is that uh, layer two is not uh, actually solving scalability because the beautiful thing about Ethereum layer one is that all of the applications are composable. So now you're just like, like fragmenting it. So I've, I've heard critics uh, say that. What, what's your response to that? Do you think that this is true scalability or do you think because it doesn't preserve some of the nice atomic transactions between all of the, the DeFi money Legos on Ethereum that we're, we're, we're losing something and we're not truly scaling Ethereum? What's your response to that? I mean, I think, you're, I think we are losing something. And I mean, Matt said the same thing. Like we would, it would be great to stay at L1, but I think we've just hit the limits of, of what we can really do. Um, potentially there's some innovation in the future that can, that can fix this, but we've had a lot of smart minds on this problem. Um, and it seems like we're back to this idea again, as far as into scaling. So um, I think the best thing we can do um, as protocols is to create a, such a system where potentially if need be, we might even need to be able to deploy ourselves on different um, different layer twos and find ways that we can bridge. So maybe the solution to that problem before that, that David mentioned is we find a way to deploy synthetics, version synthetics on Loopring um, that can interact very nicely with Loopring. And then we have a way to, to bridge that gap uh, from their layer two to our layer two. But at the end of the day, like um, if we can't find a nice way to do it, like to go from, from one layer two to another layer two, then yeah, we do break. To some degree, we do break composability. And, you know, and I'll, you know I, I guess I don't really have much else to say on that one. Well, so here's my, my other follow-up uh, to this, Justin, mm -hmm. is because, you know, synthetics interacts with a ton of the other 
DeFi protocols in Ethereum mm-hmm. today. So I remember when Dave and I were talking to, to Kane about this on a community Ask Me Anything, and he said, uh, hey, you know what Synthetics is doing? We're moving out of Manhattan and we're going to Brooklyn. And uh, we asked the question, okay, Kane, um, like, you know, how are you going to get the other DeFi product protocols to come to Brooklyn with you, right? And he was like, well, we're going to make Brooklyn freaking awesome and everyone's going to want to be there. So my question to you, Justin, is like, as part of solving this composability, you've got with optimistic rollups, you've got this this essentially almost like a, a DeFi chain, right? It can, it can mm-hmm. host the other DeFi money protocols. But my question is one of coordination. How do you get everyone else to come to Brooklyn with you? What are you seeing along those lines? I mean, I think one way, what else is really offering optimism is really offering is, is um, the ability to, to tinker, to play. You know, it's, it, L1 has become prohibitive. Now, yes, of course, you could tinker on Covan or Gurley or any other test net, but L2 provides the ability to tinker. And I think that's exceptionally powerful. I think perhaps people who don't, who aren't engineers, don't underestimate the, the importance of that, having a playground where you can actually start putting things out there and actually working. Um, so, you know, I think that I expect to see lots of interesting innovation happen on layer two. Now, the, the big protocols, some of them are probably sitting there thinking, you know, what do I do? Do I wait for do I wait for a better generalizable ZK? Do I join optimism? You know, and my response to them is like, you should be thinking about this regardless. And and I don't see why it's why you shouldn't be considering ways to potentially fragment, right? Potentially fragment. I don't I don't see why they, you know, I don't see why they wouldn't try and do this. Like now, yes, there's cognitive overhead, but again, I think that the writing's on the wall that we need to do something. Now, Kane's probably more. Well, I wouldn't say fashionable. I'm the one who used to live in Brooklyn. I think, but, you know, <laughs> He lives in Sydney, hardly the, hardly the most fashionable city in the world. Sorry, Robbie. Well, the Robbie is in the best part of Sydney, I think. Sorry, Hills, but I'm one of the best. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, we definitely have been talking to lots of other protocols have been, you know, been, have been asking us and talking to us and like, we want to get on there. I mean, but they all have their own concerns. Like, you know, you know let's say a money market goes over there, like, you know, an, uh, you know Compound or Aave, then they're going to be like, okay, well, we're splitting up our, you know, might be like, well, we're splitting up our, you know, liquidity. We have liquidity over here and liquidity over there. And how do we do it? You know, these are particular problems that these guys have got to do, but I, we've seen lots of demand. Lots of people have been asking us and, and, and reaching it through us and trying to get out and, you know, and get on there. And right now, as I said, unfortunately, only synthetics are able to deploy. So I see it coming. I mean, I see, I see it being a pretty cool place, but I, again, don't think it's a be all end all, you know, um, Manhattan still exists. And, and you know what? I'm not in New York anymore, but, um, but you know, I hear Manhattan's starting to come back, you know, it's becoming the new place because everyone's moved out. So the artists are coming back in. So, you know, <laughs> there you go. You know. R- Robbie, do you have anything to add to the composability discussion before we move to the next topic for the panel? Yeah, just quickly. I think I have two things. Um, the first one is that I think that, uh, you know, Justin is totally right. It's about making, Brooklyn a playground and a really exciting playground. Uh, you know, we're going to ask Cairo, you can build recreations of, of this functionality in Immutable X. Um, the second thing to say is I think this is why NFTs is an interesting use case for L2. It's less about building that interoperability and more about how can you trade real assets on, on, a, on a blockchain um, with high security. Um, and so I think that there's less of a critical need there. Um, the third one though is I guess like what does a scaling Ethereum mean? Uh, is it 
you are allowing the network effects of the community to be preserved interoperably. That's one definition. Is that you are allowing people to use the layer one settlement based uh, security um, as, as the security under which their, their logic is, is transacted. I think that's a really compelling definition is I think that's fundamentally what differentiates Ethereum from every other chain out there uh, because either way they, they achieve either their security through a, a less secure mean via a consensus mechanism that's completely centralized or their chain is just less valuable and therefore easy to attack. Um, so I think that's my kind of my real question is what does scaling Ethereum mean? And I think that it has to be on real layer twos. I don't mind if there's a bunch of fragmented layer twos. I think that's a great future um, for Ethereum because at the end of the day, value is being consumed in the form of ETH proofs being paid on chain and two, economic bandwidth is being increased uh, because these assets are being transferred with the same level of security as Ethereum. Um, so I would say it absolutely is more so than any other solution. There's a reason that Vitalik said ETH is on roll-ups as the future. Uh, you know, centralized sidechains are a betrayal of ETH's values, literally a quote from him. Um, so, I mean, if I'm, if I'm taking any cue, I'm, I'm taking a cue from the, the guy who made it. Yeah, and you know, you said the magic words, at least for me, economic bandwidth. I, I have been, um, David and I have both been such a proponent of this term because I, I do think that scalability is so narrowly defined if you just think about it in terms of transactions per second on the main chain, right? Ignore so many aspects of it. Ignores the scalability of the, the community, ignores the scalability of user experience, it ignores the scalability of economic security, and it ignores the scalability of trustless economic bandwidth. And when you have an asset like ETH, of course, that acts as a store of value, doesn't have any other centralized intermediary, and you're able to preserve that on a layer two, well, aren't you scaling? You are scaling trustless economic bandwidth, are you not? So I, I totally agree with that last point, Robbie, that we have to also broaden and expand the definition of scalability for these money systems. I think David is going to take the next question for the panel. Yeah. Th uh, speaking of money systems, the, the current form of getting value into Ethereum is you, you sign up with Coinbase, you sign up with Gemini, you buy your Ether, and then you get it deposited to your own, um, your own Ethereum address, whether it's your MetaMask, your Ledger. But that's like you getting injected with like your, you know, your first little amount of Ether, you're getting injected into the heart of Manhattan, where you don't really like things are scary. Um, the, the, the L2 world is what, what really gets me bullish about the possibility of L2s is that each individual L2 offers a unique on-ramp possibility into Ethereum, where if people are playing um, with like games on the Immutable X platform, uh, what about the possibility of uh, purchasing your NFTs with your credit card on the Immutable X? And all of a sudden there's some value flow from you know the legacy world, the you know the banked world into uh, the immutable XL2, which is you know the next step into a, a bankless life. So, Robbie, let's start with you. What what kind of things could could happen, or do you have in the works with you know value flows directly onto the L2 that's not actually coming straight from Ethereum? Yeah, I, that's the whole point, and I think that's why I we almost have a separate idea to to find more financial or DeFi L2s. Um, is that what, what I specialize in is NFTs. That's obviously what we're trying to scale. Um, and I think NFTs have the potential to capture an enormous amount of value in the real world. Uh, that's video game assets for one. There was 90 billion US dollars worth of in-game items, not box copies, literally the items uh, sold last year to gamers. Um, and they received zero dollars of real value. They could sell none of that. 
So I think that's a ripe market. Gamers are already digital natives and we're already seeing, you know, major companies starting to dip their toes into the space, whether it's the initiatives from Ubisoft, um, who, by the way, the main thing they care about, because the Ubisoft, uh, you know, blockchain team, ultimately the thing that scares them is what if they put the Ubisoft brand name on something that, that ends up breaking, that, that asset is taken. Um, and so they fundamentally care about security. That's why Ethereum is going to be the winner, because if you put World of Warcraft on a blockchain, you can't put it on a flow. You can't put it on a, you know, a, a centralized sidechain which can't support that level of value. The 200 billion plus worth of economic bandwidth of Ethereum can. That's why I'm bullish. And 100%, the future is, it's not people interacting with, with apps and things. Maybe that's kind of a developer mindset and that's what, where, where a lot of this value originates. It's, hey, this is a new asset for digital, this is a new standard for digital assets. If you want to interact with a game, what you expect from your ownership quality is that you can sell it. Um, and you don't even know you don't even need to know how the, the security works under the hood. You just know that, hey, these are the rights I get as a user. I pay with a credit card. I get these tradable properties. And yes, it's being minted into an L2 on Ethereum for free um, via an API called by that game's publisher. Um, and then I see it going way beyond gaming items as well. I mean, NFTs have the potential to encapsulate the entire world's financial system outside of fungible tokens. Options contracts are unique uh, financial contracts. Insurance contracts are based on the unique underlying circumstances of the home. We've seen digital art sell $100 million worth this year. We've seen um, sports moments being tokenized. It's this like fundamentally brand new world. Um, and I think that that world belongs in the infrastructure of Ethereum. You'll love to hear it. Matt, when can I get my bank account injected into the fiat or into the Loopring L2? Yeah, I'm glad to know if this is part of your bull case for Loopring now, uh, as you said before, so I'll, I'll have to work harder on it. But yeah, I mean, this is, I guess, like a pretty boring topic. It's like how much effort and how hard could we work on like regulatory things, right? Like we've been squarely in Ethereum land for three and a half years. It's, it's nice that like, we don't worry too much about regulation. Um, it's, you know, it's, I, I kind of hate having to muddy up the waters with thinking about fiat and different jurisdictions and everything is just so much more simple on Ethereum, the uh, global jurisdiction and stuff like that. But. but so Matt, can I, can I ask a question that gets at the heart of this? Like, so haven't the, the crypto banks like Coinbase and Gemini and, you know, even Binance to some extent already figured that out? Like, so why couldn't they just, rather than withdraw to Ethereum mainnet for my ETH, have a button that says withdraw to loop ring, right? And after I, I make my purchases, they're, they're kind of the fiat bridge, the fiat on-ramp. Anyway, I just want an on-ramp directly from these crypto banks directly to loop ring, and they could solve the regulatory stuff for you. They already have that out of the box. How close are we to something like that? Or is, or is there some challenge with that that um, we're not seeing? Right. Great point. Um, and this is, I guess, a business. So first of all, that can be done right now. They could have done that six months ago. Um, although now, I guess, gas fees sustainably high would be like a greater impetus on them because either they're swallowing the, the high gas cost to give their user assets in a reasonable time or they're passing it on to users for, uh, you know, a $10, $15 withdrawal. So there's, we have those conversations. I guess a kind of maybe unexpected business answer for, for Loopring specifically is, so they could just use our API and forget Loopring the exchange, the AMM, it's just this layer two where somebody could 
uh, you know, they could just throw some dye across and it goes to an Ethereum address, right? There's no special, you, you use your own Ethereum address on Loopring. There's no, nothing funky that needs to happen, just an API call. And it ends up in this addresses kind of Loopring layer two shelf, which all they need is their Ethereum address to access. But what I was gonna say is it's a bit of a business case. Maybe they, maybe some exchanges are reluctant to have some, some, some assets kind of pipe in to the loopering system because then we might eat their cake or eat their lunch a bit. Like, right. It's like, why am I just zapping it into you where you are a Binance that cannot act evil? Like why would Binance like pipe a billion dollars of fiat through loopering in a day when those users kind of could like, oh, maybe I want to get off here and, and you know, and continue using Loopring. So I'm kind of, if this wasn't already in people's head, I kind of don't like saying it because maybe now I've given them a reason to, uh, to, to push back against us. But um, yeah, yeah, the truth is like, yeah, sorry. I, I I see your point, Matt. And like so so maybe a Binance because they have their their ETH killer, you know, the Binance chain, maybe they, they might be more reluctant to to do something with Loopring. But it's like let me bring Justin into this conversation here too and get his thoughts on this. Uh, you know, the the Winklevoss twins are regular bankless listeners and they, they are very involved in uh in Gemini, the exchange, of course. Like Justin, how do you get Gemini? to do a direct fiat on-ramp into the synthetics optimistic roll-up that you're building? Do you think that is the way forward to get fiat into the space or do you have an alternative idea on that? What would you say to the to the Winklevoss twins if they're listening now? Yeah, I mean, basically we just need a, we just need a way for, for these um, like centralized exchanges, for example, to, to get access to the tokens, right? Like there's no reason why they couldn't um, once they know the addresses, the contracts, and they've got, you know, they've got balances set up on layer two for their, you know, various, you know, wallets, it's easy enough for them just to send off. They could go, okay, there's access to SNX. They can, right now we have SNX living on L2. Um, right now transfers are disabled because we're in the pseudo mainnet thing. But once the real mainnet comes along, um, there's no reason why they couldn't acquire SNX, have it set up on a certain wallet on L2, and then plug in a fiat on-ramp and off they go. Bob's your so uncle. They can be like, okay, it's fiat. And then... So there's no technical reason that they couldn't just do that. And I'm just, just curious, uh, Justin, your thoughts on, on um, maybe all there has to be is kind of an economic reason to do this, right? So in the very early stages of Ethereum, no exchange supported uh, Ethereum, but as it grew, it became impossible to ignore. And is that sort of what mm -hmm. happens with layer two? I mean, Matt's here on Loopring with 200 you know, 50 million in total locked value. You guys have 160 million. If this is a billion or more, does this just not become impossible for exchanges to ignore? And they build those those ramps naturally because that's where the economic value is. Justin, do you see it playing out like that? Yeah, I mean, it's the same way, like why they're listing all the, why is Binance listing every token under the sun? I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> exactly. The see people are trading it. Like you just got to do it because that's what you The market decides to dictate it, you know? Yeah, you know, it's really we're just talking about developer cycles, right? So they've got to decide whether or not they want to invest the time, and you know what it's like to to try to invest developer cycles. If there's enough enough, you know, suits saying we need to do this for money, then they'll, the developers usually have to get their toe along. Okay, we do it. So guys, we have a lot of um, folks that are into crypto investing. Obviously, they're they're bullish on various DeFi tokens. They're they're bullish on ETH. 
but there, there's a question, I think, of how layer two constructs might impact the underlying ETH value capture thesis. And I'm wondering, Robbie, if you have any, any thoughts on this. Are these layer two solutions value accretive to something like ETH? Or are they value competitive? Do they take away from ETH's value proposition as a whole? Maybe we'll start with you, Robbie. Short answer, L2s are the savior of Ethereum's price. They're the only thing holding back other scalability solutions who can offer UX that gives people the critical revenue they need right now, but fundamentally don't use Ethereum as a security or settlement layer from destroying us. And I mean, you know, Flow raised a quarter billion dollars the other day. Rome was on Twitter saying, you know, Ethereum's all great in that, but Flow is ready for mainstream NFTs. I don't think he's just trying to say that to mainstream NFTs. I think he's trying to say that he wants Ethereum to be zero and he wants Flow to be the dominant chain for all transactions. And he thinks NFTs are a good entry point to that. Now that's fine. If you want to use Flow, um, go ahead. You can also use my old laptop with a database um, and I'll run it for you for, for $2 million a year. Um, but fundamentally, if you use the definition that you know you, you guys popularize, which is capital asset, um, which is a form of economic bandwidth, store of value, um, the only thing, you, that, that means two things. One, you need to at some point consume ETH. If you're not consuming ETH, you are not providing consumable demand for Ethereum. Two, you need to rely on Ethereum as your layer one form of security. That is the definition of a layer two. By doing that, you increase Ethereum's value proposition via uh, economic bandwidth. So quite frankly, I think any solution that is not a roll up on Ethereum right now is, is an ETH killer, is an ETH competitor. Um, you know, e even Polkadot, the way, and the reason that everyone's positioning themselves as not ETH killers is because it's a dumb thing to do. Like, I don't want to swear, it's, it's like you're going to be hated by $200 billion worth of capital. It's not a smart move. So they're positioning as, hey, we're synergistic. Hey, we're Polkadot. We're, we're a parachain. We're, we're doing this, this, and this. We're synergizing. It's crap. Just look at the fundamentals. Either you use Ethereum for your security and you consume it, you're good for its value, or you don't and you're not. Oh my God, you, I really want to see the, uh, the the podcast where it's a uh, immutable X versus flow. I want I want to see kind of that debate sound off. Now that I've heard Robbie, I'll have to be more polite. <laughs> Guys, uh, Matt, Justin, any other thoughts on that value accretive? Well, Matt, any any comments? Robbie is a great uh, spokesperson for that. Um, no, he, he's hundred percent right. Like we kind of lose sight about what, what the label layer two means like people say like anything scaling is layer two but yeah it has to be strict you have to inherit ethereum security guarantees which means you're paying gas um, I, I like how he says that you know it, it still remains a consumable you're broadening the economic bandwidth because your little vertical or once uh, david uh, i was on here and he described ethereum as like a peer and then you go on to like your your loop ring ride at the end you know like so so these things like the end of that peer is like its own little economy where you know toes are going in, so the bandwidth is existing. It's it's a hundred percent creative, and I, I do think it, it it is just massively bullish. Roll ups, uh, yeah, like you know, we're talking ETH maximalism before. I'm a, I'm a roll up maximalist, and I'd even go so far, you know, maybe just to to jab to more friendly jab here, but like I, I'm a zk roll up person. Like I think those, I think zk roll ups are kind of like huge. Here now for the application specific stuff. Optimistic rollups are like right here and they're gonna do a lot of generalizable stuff. And then 
you know, ZK Rolf's kind of re-leapfrog when you have like this, the ZK snark and the uh, advance and then you do everything back in the validity proof way. But yeah, all this is, it's just massively creative. And I do, you know, it's funny to hear Robbie say about like the, the way they're positioning themselves. I like to think that maybe I tried to coin something. I'm not sure, but like Ethereum killers are rebranding themselves as ETH enhancers. Well, they don't use that word, but I use that word. Everything must be an ETH enhancer now. Otherwise it's just really, really stupid on you. I mean, we saw maybe a sound bite these past few days talking, put like it, putting that in jeopardy, but um, for, from different chains saying that there are no network effects that uh, somebody may laugh when he hears about uh, Ethereum network effects, but you have to respect the network effect. You have to respect the network. Uh, it, it's, it's just, um, it, it's massively creative. I don't know if there's a, if there's even a, a bearish interpretation. I haven't heard one of, uh, of layer two for Ethereum. Besides the potential, the composability breaking, I don't see any kind of value um, there's no leaky bucket where this kind of bypasses Ethereum accruing the value, in my opinion. Justin, do you want to add anything to this conversation? Any thoughts here? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree uh, with both Matt and Robbie, and, and, and Robbie quite very eloquently uh, put forth his, his thesis that, that, you know, the layer two needs to be something that relies on ETH for security, which I think is a really nice, uh, really nice way to put a point on it. Um, I guess my main thought and it's a bit more meta is that um, one thing I really like about Ethereum is I feel like it, you know, it's decentralized, of course, as, as Robbie said, but the way that it like, it puts its money where its mouth is in terms of the way the EF supports, you know, various implementations of the, you know, the protocol, like, you know, the EVM, like here's, here's a spec, go on, go at it, right? There's, you know, JavaScript, you have Rust, you have Go, and then the same thing with, with, with uh, ETH2.0, right? Like, let's go with Lighthouse, it's Prismatic, you know, and I feel like this is where the same thing with, with rollups, right? Like here are different implementations of rollups and, and have at it. Like there is no one solution there, it's just the specifications based on, um, you know, security um, you know, and usability and, you know, things, people, we are all sort of expected to, to try different things out to, to iterate and things will bubble up, the right things will bubble up. And I love that about Ethereum. Like I feel like there isn't this, there isn't this, 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 you know, dictator down on high saying this is the way it needs to be. And, you know, credit to Vitalik because he does a pretty good job of, of trying to stand back and let things, let things evolve around him rather than, you know, trying to, trying to maneuver and steer the ship. You guys, this has been such a fantastic conversation. So thank you guys for all, all for so much of your time and, and your insights. It's really valuable to me and, of course, also to the listeners. And I want to finish up with this last final lightning question. So in just two, three, four, just a few sentences, can you guys give us the maximally successful scenario of the long-term version of your app? So like when L2 is completely rolled out and also under the conditions of maximal global adoption, what, do you, what does your app do when you have as much scale as you want and all of the things that you guys are trying to get done, you do get done? Justin, let's start with you. Users can basically get a synthetic version of, of any kind of asset they want. Anyone around the world can take it and no one can stop them, right? They get access to, to whatever whatever they need, whatever they need it, um, and as quickly as they can, and it doesn't cost them an arm and a leg. Matt, what's the maximally successful version of Loopring? Loopring out-competing legacy fintech applications. Um, you know, 
we don't compete with each other on this call. I mean, some of us are not in the same verticals, but just any user can trade any Ethereum-based asset. So not synthetics, not a synthetic asset, but just if it's on Ethereum, or actually we can trade synthetics, but um, you know, just trade anything, instant finality, um, super cheap, and payments as well, just complete freedom. You know, we've started using the little slogan for our app, freedom at your fingertips. That is what Ethereum allows us. We can never misbehave. Nobody could take it from you. Nobody could stop you. That's what we hope Loopring becomes. Matt, you must be bearish because I was hoping in your answer, you would have said the words Venmo, Robinhood, and central bank digital currencies. But uh, I guess I guess you're, you're uh, just focused on a little bit more, more meta level right there. True. I wanted to keep it. You know, somebody actually brought it to my attention that on our site, it says feeling, you probably read it, like Venmo but, and Robinhood and user experience. But then I said, do you still want to say Robinhood on there? Should you remove that? So, uh, but I, we haven't removed it yet. <laughs> give, give it all, all the stuff. But yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll leave it there. Robbie, what's the maximally successful version of Immutable and Immutable X? Yeah, I think it's the marketplace for all unique assets uh, worldwide, uh, or the, the exchange protocol. That's it. Full stop. All right, you guys, this has been such a fantastic episode. Again, this is, we have Robbie Ferguson, who is at the Immutable Project, building out the marketplace for L2s, for NFTs. We have Matt Finestone, business development at Loopring, the ZK Rollups Exchange and Payments protocol, protocol. And of course, we have Justin Moses, CTO of Synthetics, leading the charge to deploy Synthetics on optimistic rollups. You guys, this is, I think the listeners are really going to enjoy this one. So thank you so much for giving us your time and being here. All right, Bankless listeners, action items. If you want a primer on rollups, we just had Vitalik on the show who gives a great overview of rollups in sort of layman's language. We will include a link to that in the show notes. We will also include links to Loopring, Immutable X, and Synthetic's new Optimism L2, because here's the great thing. You can start using layer two now, today. It's here, as our panel said. So start using it. Uh, you don't have to, to keep uh, with, with on the mainnet and the gas fee transactions. We could start using uh, Loopring, Immutable, and Synthetics now on layer two. Also, David, last and final request. We want those bull market stars on iTunes. How are we doing on our five-star ratings on iTunes, my friend? Uh, we are always trying to do better than where we currently are at. Uh, as you guys listen to during this podcast, L2 is here, but yet people somehow don't realize it yet. And you know why? It's because we don't have enough five-star reviews on iTunes. That's why. So if, That's exactly why. If you why. could, please go to wherever you listen to your podcast and give us those five-star reviews. We're trying to get Bankless to the top of the iTunes business and investing charts so that everyone can hear the great gospel of Ethereum. So if you could, please go ahead and do that. We would really appreciate it. All right. If you if you care about L2, give us those five-star reviews. That's what David said. All right. Risks and disclaimers, everyone. ETH nope. We're moving the risks and disclaimers to the end of the debrief, which, like I said, we are going to add in right here. So just as a recap, Ryan and I do these debriefs every single episode. Right after we record with our guests, we hop into another call and record our thoughts, our, our lessons learned, our 
are just our post episode debriefs. Uh, and this is something that we do for the Bankless Premium subscribers. We are giving it out on the free RSS feed so that people can get a taste of what it's like to listen to a debrief in case that is something that you are interested in. If you like the debriefs, there is a link in the show notes so you can go and subscribe to the Bankless Premium RSS feed where you will get these every time the podcast gets released. I hope you guys enjoy it. I always have a ton of fun with these with Ryan at the end of every single episode. And it's honestly where I kind of get some of my best learning done. Uh, the, the podcasts are always super informative, but also the, the debrief with Ryan is where I really synthesize and integrate a lot of information. And I know he th- uh, thinks similarly as well. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Here we go. David. All right. What'd you Ryan. think of that, man? <laughs> oh. <laughs> is L2 here? Is layer two here? So I, I got my Loopring wallet up and running last week and I made just a, some quick ETH to USDT transfers. It's actually the first and only time I've owned USDT is on Loopring. It was a breeze, dude. It was it was fantastic. It's exactly the uh, experience that I would enjoy. And like, I actually kind of feel good about paying these like penny fees on Loopring because it's not free. It's not free. There are fees. But uh, coming out of that conversation that we had and the rant that we did about Robinhood and then the conversations that we had with the Winklevoss, um, the fee, the, the free model of Robinhood is actually toxic. And so yeah. the, the pennies that you pay on the Loopring L2, along with the instant transactions, which are, of course, just an absolute treat, makes me feel good. It's like, yes, I'm, I should be paying pennies for this. That feels like the right price. Um, and so Loopring or Loopring, the L2 is absolutely here. Uh, and I think when the Immutable X platform launches with NFTs, I'll finally dive back into my Gosling chain cards and start playing some games there. Yeah, Synthetics is the only one I haven't really tried. And of course, uh, Immutable X because it hasn't launched yet. But um, Loopring does seem fantastic. And David, it just seems like the missing piece here is getting some fiat on ramps directly into mm-hmm. Loopring. Matt had an interesting comment. He he said that maybe some of the exchanges might see it as competitive, but I don't think they will. You know, like mm-hmm. I think that the exchanges have their secret sauce, which is, you know, they are a bridge between the legacy financial world and this new financial system, right? And like they've got that locked. You know, they've mm-hmm. have all the regulatory boxes checked. They've got a foot in the old world and a foot in the new world. They're just going to go where the economic activity is. And if that economic activity lives in Ethereum layer twos, whether it's loop ring or whether it's, you know, an optimistic roll up, that's where they're going to drop users off. Ultimately it's going to be up to uh, their users demand their customers demand. So um, like we have to demand and advocate for getting exchanges to support layer two directly. Once we have that, David, this space is going to absolutely like blow up in terms of use. I was amazed that Loopring already has 250 million total locked value. And that's without a fiat on-ramp. That's how hungry people are for cheap layer two solutions right now. Yeah. And and I think the uh, you know, the fiat on-ramp into L2, it's it's destined to happen. And I think I think I can confidently say that because there's a little bit of a Moloch trap going on, right? Where it's in the best interest of exchanges, centralized exchanges to not support Loopring because it is their native competitor, right? So why would they want to benefit Loopring because it's their loss? But if every single centralized exchange is operating under that paradigm, then it only takes one centralized exchange to defect and be that one centralized exchange that charges that $15 fee to get your your fiat deposited into Loopring. It only takes one, right? Um, And so 
And, and and I don't even think that's why that's happening. I don't think centralizer exchanges are like, no, loopering, loopering is gonna eat eat my <laughs> I don't lunch. think they They're, see I'm, them as a threat. I, no. I don't I don't think they they think that way. I think it's just simply a matter of there's just not enough demand there. And that's why I've been trying to like on Twitter and on the podcast be like loopering, loopling, loopering, loopering, because it is our version of both Venmo and Robinhood that is the providing the user experience that people like. Um, and so is, and the, the other real, the, the thing that they still have to fight for the thing that they still haven't solved, which is not really something that is solvable by them is liquidity. Um, yeah. loopering liquidity is really strong for ETH USDT. It's really strong for ETH, uh, DPI actually, uh, because I think the index co-op actually subsidizes with index rewards for mm. ETH DPI liquidity providers on loopering. Um, but after that, I think the liquidity starts to, to really drop off. Um, so that's actually something that I've been positioning myself for. Um, as soon as, as soon as the market continues a little bit, I think I might be transferring some ETH and some some of my DeFi tokens over to Loopring just to provide liquidity there. Yeah, that's that's, that's a public good, but it's you also good, get yeah. you also get paid for it as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I um, I mean, it's the best I'm, kind of public good is the one that pays me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely bullish on on what those guys are saying. I mean, this time it does feel different. I'm I we made this comment during the podcast, but uh, the children of 2017, I think, felt like scalability was just around the corner, and it never turned out to be the case. Like state channels kind of evaporated into like not really being practical for the types of DeFi applications we, we, we needed. Plasma really never panned out in a way, but like this feels different this time. And I think you don't have to believe the panelists uh, and the people we talk to. You don't even have to believe us. Just go out and start using the applications. Um, the thing about Loopring that you could feel good about too is it's not fake DeFi. There's a lot of like David, like fake DeFi out there right now. Like, I mean, to be honest, man, Binance. Justin Sun learned this two years ago when at Consensus he branded himself and put himself everywhere with the tagline "Dare to DeFi" in 2018. <laughs> like, people have been writing on a DeFi time. brand forever. Yeah, and now that it's popular, the more they're they're obviously going to run on it. Like, um, uh, CZ from Binance. You know, talked about CDFI. That that's what the Binance chain is uh, essentially. But I mean, twenty-one validators, uh, none of it's really open source. All controlled by Binance elected entities. Oh my God, dude, that's the same. That's the same banking cartel system we just came from. That's not why I'm going bankless. That's not why you're going bankless. It's not even an improvement to the existing system we have when insiders can kind of like front run you or reverse transactions or censor things. Um, I guess you don't have to worry about hacks in those scenarios because, you know, somebody could just reverse the transaction. But the thing about these layer two solutions, particularly like the ones that are secured by Ethereum is they are bankless. So when you're using Loopring, you know you are using a, a trustless system that is secured by Ethereum. And man, that feels good too, right? Yeah. And I think one thing that all of these, uh, all these implementers, these DeFi implementers, uh, they, I, we need to get, we need to sponsor some like NFT where somebody like draws like the DeFi implementers, like in some <laughs> sort of event style. Anyways, um, uh, the one thing that they all seem to understand pretty well and and all talk about is that it's, it's uh, L2, real L2s are an extension of, Ethereum native security. 
But I think they all started to hint at this as well is when you, when you have that box checked and you are an extension of Ethereum native security, you are also an a native extension of the Ethereum community, right? When you don't sacrifice values, you don't sacrifice the community. And there's, there's that extension of values is really, really important. It's not just about the security. It's that what comes with the security. It's the whole package. It's everything. And that's what CDFI or side chains, that's what they don't bring along. That's what they don't understand. Did, did you hear, David, the passion in which, uh, in particular, all of them, but in particular, Robbie addressed this with, Robbie from Immutable X, right? So, I mean, he, he was just like, look, uh, competing projects, competing Ethereum killer projects have literally bribed us to leave Ethereum and come to their chain. Like, literally, we will give you millions of dollars to go do this, right? Um, but his point was like, it's not worth it for us. These projects don't have a soul. They don't have a, a long-term future. It's a deal with the devil. We are thinking about building Immutable X for the, for the long-term, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're not going to take these shortcuts, right? It's like $250 million war chest can't buy your project a soul is the bottom right. line here. And so we saw some of that, uh, loyalty come through and so, mm -hmm. some people might think, oh my God, like. These are just loyalty talker, right? right? Like what's loyalty? But, people talking about faith. Who are these look, people? Man, look, man, it's not so, uh, be, if you're maximalist, be maximalist to a set of ideals, right? To a set of values. Like I, I would consider myself not an Ethereum maximalist, but like a decentralization maximalist, a bankless maximalist. Like I care deeply about these things because if we just recreate the system that we just left, we haven't, we haven't done anything in crypto. Like we haven't given anything back to the world. That's not why I'm here. And I don't think that's why any of these projects are here. So it wasn't so much that they're like loyal to Ethereum, but they are loyal to the set of values that are baked into uh, the Ethereum protocol and the Ethereum social contract. And I, I just saw that uh, you know, come through. The other thing I saw was something that Justin kept going back to. And, wait, um, wait, before, before, before you turn to yeah, Justin, go, go, pa go. pause on that thought, because I, I want to riff on that. Yeah, um, riff. Th think about how meaningful it is when the C CEO, or I think, I think uh, president, co-president that Robbie is, uh, turns down, I think what he said was $250,000 or maybe even more, uh, when he turns that down. And he's not doing that because he has like this like political alignment to Ethereum. He's he's making a rational choice. He's saying that the choice to stay on Ethereum is worth more than the bribe <laughs> yeah. from other chains, yeah. right? And not not only is Ethereum not bribing him, Ethereum is expensive for him. Like Immutable has spent a ton of money on gas, and so like not only is Ethereum not bribing him, but they're actually costing him money, and he still thinks that the benefit of staying on Ethereum is worth it, right? And uh, when he said that, I was reminded of our conversation with Vitalik on his uh, 2020 Reflections podcast with us, where he said that there are some incentives that aren't money, right? There are incentives such as meaning and purpose and having a soul, right? And that's what you find on Ethereum. Ethereum has culture. Ethereum has soul. And if you leave Ethereum for Binance Chain or EOS or whatever, you're giving up the culture and the soul and the memes and the community. And that's the whole point of this whole revolution is all of those things. Yeah, it, it goes back to Naval's statement, you know, play, play long-term games with long-term people. And this is like, these projects are playing a long-term game with a long-term network, right? Like 
they are they are valuing that higher than any short-term profits or any sort of bribes uh, competing chains might offer. Um, the other point I was going to get to about, about Justin is he kept referencing sort of uh, the development style that we've seen so much in Ethereum and in the development of its protocol, but also the development of DeFi and layer twos, which is kind of this difference um, between like the cathedral and the bazaar. So this guy wrote a book in uh, 1999 called The Cathedral and the Bazaar. And it was really comparing kind of the open source movement versus like the top down traditional software development uh, that, mm -hmm. that used to happen, right? So that would be the cathedral. Like here are the specifications, right? right? Now the overlords will pass these specifications right. to you, the developers, and you will implement it per the requirements. Well, the bazaar is not like that at all. Right. It's chaos, it's an open market. Anyone can come, it's permissionless. But what ends up happening with like a Linux versus Windows is open source Linux wins. It wins mm -hmm. uh, like from a game theoretic perspective and it wins because in the bazaar, the, like the best vendors kind of rise to the top and all of the experiments are tried. And this is really the Ethereum community's development ethos when it comes to anything. But when it comes to layer twos, like all of the things are are being tried. I go back to like Bitcoin. What? How is Bitcoin going to scale aside from like side chains like mm -hmm. Binance and Coinbase and crypto banks, right? It's got that, but uh, Lightning, like one, we have one solution, one, right? right? It's it's like this cathedral based approach, like mm -hmm. which is which is so strange to me. But Ethereum, what what's it doing? Well, it's trying like everything that's possible. And through that is going to converge on, on the best solution. So it's this bizarre like experimentation that Justin kept coming back to that I think is so important in like the organic material of a developer ecosystem like this. Yeah, the, the cathedral versus bizarre metaphor is the way I interpret that is order versus chaos. And, and you, you said yeah. order when you called it the bizarre and like the cathedral is the, the hierarchy, the, the, the rules, the, the constructs, the structures that when they are good because they provide order to our lives, but as they grow older and older and older, they grow more and more rigid and calcified They're and brittle. fragile. Brittle, yeah. Brittle and oppressive, right? Because when these gargantuan structures grow too large, you can't climb them anymore, right? You yeah. can't climb up the social ladder of social orders and social structures. And so therefore we turn to the bizarre, which is chaos, which is creative destruction, which is order out of just this, cesspool of ideas where just atoms and atoms and atoms of ideas are colliding against each other and they create these new structures that are no longer oppressive that are no longer and it looks like, like it shouldn't work it looks like right. it shouldn't work from the outside you're like mm -hmm. oh my god this is pure chaos how is right. any of this stuff there's no grand unified plan how mm -hmm. is any of this stuff going to work out and mm -hmm. it turns out to work out better because organically all of things are tried yeah organically right. all, all of the things are tried and only the good things stick and that's what gets me so bullish about Ethereum is that it's it's what, what we call chaotic organization. It's the organization through chaos. It's not top-down organization. It's bottom-up organization. And only the best things are chosen to survive via chaotic organization. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, okay, so when you sort of zoom out and look at layer two, um, it feels like it's here partially, but it also feels like it's not complete yet, right? Like... Mm -hmm. um, I am waiting for a optimistic roll-up for DeFi to mm -hmm. 
to come mm-hmm. to fruition, right? Like it's good that synthetics is there and trying it, but just synthetics in its own optimistic roll-up is not enough. I am really looking forward to seeing what's going to happen with uh, Uniswap. They're kind mm-hmm. of the next big mover that's right. sort of on my radar. And last I understood, they were going in a optimistic roll-up type direction in the same sort of direction that synthetics is. But I have that... Like Uniswap has been a little quiet recently. I think they're keeping things under wrapped and they're just going to do a big reveal at some point. But that to me is the next major phase of this. Can we get multiple DeFi protocols on the same optimistic rollup? And then after that, probably the next frontier is how can we get uh, integration and interoperability across the rollups themselves. How do we build those bridges? Which seems like it's a whole nother topic of conversation and research is going to come down later. But like, what, what were your takeaways? How close does this stuff feel to you? Yeah, it, it feels like everyone is kind of in this sort of like standoff where everyone everyone's in a circle. You know, Uniswap is looking at Compound. Compound is looking at Synthetics. Synthetics is looking <laughs> at MakerDAO. And they're like, which, what's, what are you going to do? Like, what roll up are you going on to? Because if you go on to that one, that might change my decision-making. Right. And so they, everyone's kind of waiting for everyone else to make moves. And like in that scenario, it's like when one person makes a move, everyone starts to make moves. Right. Yeah. And so like, I kind of think we're in this holding pattern for, we're, we're all kind of waiting for Uniswap. Like what's Uniswap going to do? Like, what the hell is this compound cash chain? What, what, what's that doing? What are we going to do there? Um, and I think we're all kind of like in this calm before just the mass mass, just like exodus onto L2s. Right. We all, where we all kind of figured it out. Uh, and you know, while, while I kind of illustrate that that's going to just happen at the flick of a switch, it's actually not going to be like that at all. It won't be like that. It'll, it'll still be confusing. It'll still be chaos. Um, it's still going to take some time for that really, for that dust to settle. Um, and in the meantime, it's actually, it's, it's going to be painful. Like there's still going to be gas fees. They're going to be gas fees for the next six months. We're going to hear about it on Twitter, on crypto Twitter. Um, but I think going along with the bankless narrative of like, the, you can venture out onto the frontier and gain access to new knowledge. Some people still think that L2 isn't here, yet you can the, the liquidity on ETH to Tether on Loopring is insane. You can, if you are just trading ETH to Tether or ETH dollars and you, you want to do that in a DeFi way, we already have that. That's on Loopring. And so some people have already figured that out. And if you keep on, and the, the way I've been illustrating this is that scale and L2 is happening at the margins. And it's marching inwards, right? It's marching into the core of Ethereum where the rest of us are. And it really hasn't, that slow march inwards hasn't really met the average user yet. Because if you really want to find L2, you have to go outwards. You have to go to the frontier. You have to go to the margins. But the margins are expanding, right? Liquidity on loopering is expanding. Uh, synthetics is building out is staking. It's expanding. These The real estate of L2 is expanding. It just hasn't reached the fold yet. It hasn't reached the core of Ethereum yet. Yeah, you mentioned two things there. One is this is going to be painful in the short run, right? And the second um, thing you mentioned, you you talked about the like the term narrative, and I'm wondering your thoughts on this because I you know I recently tweeted out if you take like just two of the quote unquote ETH killers, alternative layer ones to Ethereum, um, Atom, so Cos- the Cosmos Network, and um, Polkadot, those two projects alone are 35 billion in terms of market cap, right? And compare those to the only two projects that are, you know, there are more than two, but 
two two projects that are kind of large enough to to surface on the top 100 coin market cap are um, Loopring and, and Matic, uh, now called Polygon, and those collectively are about like one billion, okay, or like 1.5 billion. So I think, less, I think less than one billion. I thought I think Loopring is 500 million and, and billion or 500 yeah, million. I was going less. full. I was going fully diluted value. Oh, okay, fair enough. Like fair somewhere enough. around there. That is so, the smarter way to view things, by the way, for the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, okay. So basically a 30 X, um, these ETH killers are kind of a 30 X. And so the, the question is, um, narrative, because mm -hmm. we know that the market in the, in the short run, uh, short to medium run trades completely on narrative, not on fundamentals. Mm -hmm. right. Fundamentals are almost like a, a bear market thing, right? So right. like the best yeah. time to invest in fundamentals is like, 2018, 2019. Right. Yeah. from there on out. <laughs> it's from, so we're beyond fundamentals, my friend. We're way past. It's just narrative. It's just narrative. We just narrative. care about narratives because it's a bull right. run. Now, mm -hmm. if you're a long-term thinker and you're not interested in like trading on narratives, which you have to do if you're playing the narrative game, then you can do things like we talked about, invest in ETH, invest in Bitcoin, invest in the DPI right. and have a good night's sleep, right? But uh, anyway, the market's going to get completely insane with with narratives especially as eth gas fees you said short-term pain they're going to be painful for a while like this isn't a the migration to layer two isn't going to be like we snap our fingers and suddenly i keep getting these these tweets and people saying like when are the gas fees going down right and mm -hmm. i'm like they're never going to go down on they're never one. going down they're never they're going never down. they're never going down so in this world where it's painful in the short run Layer two is getting built out. Gas fees aren't going uh, down. It feels to me like these alternative layer ones have maybe not a lot of fundamental runway, but they have a lot of narrative yeah, runway. Lots of narrative, yeah. And mm -hmm. that's why they are like pumping to the level mm -hmm. they are. And that might continue, David, if this continues to be painful in in the short run. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's an unfortunate reality. And like at the end of the day, the, the this is just kind of. I feel like this is just economics, right? Like there's so much demand for Ethereum and it has not yet built out its own L2 ecosystem to capture its own demand. Therefore the demand is overflowing. And so for a short while, perhaps there will be demand of Polkadot, right? Perhaps there will be demand of Binance Smart Chain. Uh, there's this thing on Binance Smart Chain that's like a Uniswap fork that is called Pancake Swap or something like whatever, a weird name, but so is Uniswap, I guess. Um, and they actually, <laughs> yeah, it's actually doing pretty comparable uh, volume. I think like, I think it's doing like roughly one sixth the volume of Uniswap, which is pretty good because Uniswap is doing insane volume. So like there's this app, like Uniswap like application on Binance Smart Chain that's doing one sixth of volume. So like there is overflow and there is now volume there and likely because of Ethereum gas fees. And so the fundamentals of Binance Smart Chain are improving. But at the end of the day, it's because it's overflow from Ethereum. Like, congratulations, PancakeSwap. You have Uniswap sloppy, sloppy seconds. Like, all the value that Uniswap wasn't able to capture because it hasn't built out its own L2, which is working on, is making its way to, you know, centralized exchanges, right? That makes sense. As soon as Ethereum offers the, the wells and the new real estate to capture its own value, it's staying on Ethereum. Because like we've been saying, there's soul on Ethereum, there's community on Ethereum, there's purpose on Ethereum, and you don't find that on Binance Smart Chain. So people are going to prioritize native Ethereum over Binance Smart Chain. You know what else is on Ethereum, David, is economic bandwidth, particularly mm. trustless economic bandwidth. And right. I could tell that Robbie is a bankless consumer because he brought that very <laughs> term up. 
which mm-hmm. was awesome. That's something you can't get on the Binance chain. You can't get a, a completely crypto economically settled store of value asset like ETH on the Binance chain. There's all sorts of trusted parties, whether it's you know the 21 validators that Binance elects involved, or, and there's there's no actual like crypto native store of value on the Binance chain. So all the transactions that you were talking about and all the volume, none of that is trustless economic value. It's things like USDT and stable coins that also have tethers and settlement in, in the real world too. So mm-hmm. I, I do think uh, the way Robbie was talking about it and seeing that there are, it's scalability is more than just transactions per second, right? It's like, market cap of the, the, the base layer asset. It is um, the community, the ecosystem of uh, applications, like the social contract, all of these things are part of the scalability story of, uh, of a chain and uh, need to be looked at too. Um, anything else? Any other takeaways from that app? Yeah, there, there's one one remaining part that that was my a big takeaway, and we, we saw this metaphor come out. I think from Ashley Shap, I think is the tweeter behind this, but it was like a in the early days of the cell phone, it was like 12 inches long and cost like $4,000, right? This is just how technology works. It's yep. really, really expensive and it's shitty but you don't really have any comparative because it's the first time that technology has ever came around. And that's where we are with Ethereum, right? It's really expensive. It's still pretty slow. We still don't have Ethereum 2.0, but that's just how technology works. And um, when Robbie was talking about NFTs, I was thinking about like the NFT hype, the NFT mania that's going on right now is, is awesome, but it's actually not the NFTs that Immutable X, the, the uh, L2 for Gauss Unchained and Immutable is really building because Immutable X is building NFTs that are, small in value yet the nfts that are being uh, all the making all the hype and all the splash today are thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars which makes sense because you have to pay the gas fees right like why are people aren't trading these like 25 cent you know two dollar gaza and chain cards because it doesn't make any sense they are they are doing the you know ten thousand dollar plus nfts the beeple nfts the nba top shot nfts that are worth you know beeple made like some some like 0.7 million dollars like those are the nfts that are hot right now and the reason why they're hot is because those are the only feasible nfts and so there's going to be when when immutable x uh, opens up and there's going to be like there's going to be room for, you know, microtransactions. Like one of the great promises of this cryptocurrency industry is microtransactions. When's the last time you've heard the phrase microtransactions? Like it's been a while. I and remember when I think, Bitcoiners used to talk about uh, right. streaming money in microtransactions before that came like totally unfeasible in the Bitcoin network. And it just right. turned into store value, store value, store value. Mm-hmm. And one part that we didn't get in the uh, value accretive versus value competitive model uh, conversation was that like, Say, say there's all this economic activity with like small units on Immutable X, like tons of small units, like uh, tons of volume because they're all, they're like cards are flying all over, all over the place. And then we can also say the same thing with like the, the loop ring L2 and the synthetics L2. And there's all this economic activity going on on the L2s that's not going on on Ethereum. Well, the L2 is like this reservoir. And we talked about this conversation with Nick Carter when we talked about um, the the block space fee cycle where on the L1, the fees go up and that halts economic activity. Yeah. And then and then the, the gas fees go down and people start to transact again. The reason why it halted 
was that because there was no alternative place to escape to. And so these L2s are actually like these batteries of economic activity. And that's, I think, a really strong argument for why all these L2s are going to be value accretive to Ether, the asset, is because when people are pushed off of the main Ethereum L1 because of high gas fees, they're going to go on to L2 because they have that option. And they're going to have this immense amount of economic activity, and it's only going to increase on the L2. Yet when the transaction fees on the L1 lower back down, it becomes more feasible for people to come back to the L1 and increase the economic activity back on the L1. So there's always this reservoir. Every single L2 is a reservoir of energy, a reservoir of economic activity for the L1 to tap into if it ever needs to, if the, if the demand for L1 ever goes down. Because the demand for L1 going down is bad because that's a security for Ethereum. So all these L2s are like security batteries. They're like these security reservoirs for economic activity on Ethereum. I think that's just awesome, so awesome. So yeah, awesome. that's a good point. And that, that's, again, the reason that uh, gas fees on Ethereum are never going down. Right. It's because They're never going like, down. They'll, they'll move. Uh, mm -hmm. So some of the smaller transactions that you said, they'll move to, to layer two. But uh, anytime gas fees start to go low in Manhattan, it's like price of real estate. Price of real estate in Manhattan right. like never drops because people snap it up. They'll move from Brooklyn, Brooklyn back to Manhattan. Um, so yeah, I agree. I, th I think that's kind of how it's working out, but, and also to your point that layer two unleashes a whole new set of use cases that were never going to be possible on layer one, right? Microtransactions so are not happening on layer one. And they're not feasible. Ever. They're not possible. It's just, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. It's never going to happen. And, um, that was interesting to, to hear Matt say, we were never going to deploy loopring on layer one because, the type of app we needed was never conducive to the transaction throughput of layer one. So we started immediately with, with layer two. Like you can build different types of applications in, in layer two. And I think that's definitely going to be a source of demand and innovation. Like mm -hmm. there'll probably be a whole new cycle of cool, interesting things that happen on layer two that could never happen on, on layer one. We're going to, go through those innovation waves as well. Yep. Wrap it up there. Call good. Let's wrap it up, man. It's been the debrief. We're going to do more on layer two, right? Absolutely. And more on layer two and more on NFTs. I'm pretty sure that's all that we have in the podcast content. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot to learn here. So I'm glad we're doing this, David. All right, man. Thanks. That was a debrief. Thanks everyone for listening. Risks and disclaimers, everyone. ETH is risky. So is crypto, of course as is DeFi, you could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. <laughs>